Come on, people. I know many of you are like me. You vowed to get back into running in 2024 and you need new shoes to do it. Do what I'm going to do later to do. I'm going to go to the betterrunningshoes.com website. I'm either going to pick out the best looking shoe, order that off there, right off there, or the most comfortable. Haven't decided which. Betterrunningshoes.com for the best shoe reviews on planet Earth. Welcome everyone to the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. We've got a great episode in store for you. We have an update on Donovan Brazier, who has left the Nike Union Athletics Club and Coach Pete Julian. We have yet another 800 meter to marathon star to discuss after Tigis Kasema ran 216.07 to win the Dubai Marathon in her debut last weekend. Plus, USATF has released its revised Olympic marathon selection procedure. It looks like things are more clear now than they were a few weeks ago when they initially announced it. Paul Chalimo has offered a cryptic hint about the Olympic marathon trials to Let's Run. And at the end of the show, we are joined by American record holder Grant Fisher, who talks to Let's Run in depth about his decision to leave the Bowman Track Club, his new training setup in Park City, where he's starting to incorporate double workout days. Plus, he talks about opening his 2024 season at the Milrose Games on February 11th in the two-mile against Josh Kerr. That is going to be an awesome race. Can't wait for it. This is Jonathan Gold. I am joined by Robin and Weldon Johnson, co-hosts of the podcast, co-founders of Let's Run.com. Robert, can we get a running update? You said you're looking for running shoes. How many miles have you run in the last week in your quest for this mythical sub three marathon? The last week? Yeah. Weekly mileage is a pretty common tally of how much you're running in this world. Oh, it's January 9th. So that would be zero. I've run one mile in the last nine weeks. That was the one mile all out time trial on January 1st. I thought about doing another time trial this last weekend when the tracks might be available. I don't want to go up to like a track in the middle of the day and they think they might think I'm some sort of perv or something. So I was waiting for the weekend, but I don't have any shoes. So I may have to wait till next weekend to try again. Okay, Robert, but- I'm not an expert running coach. I didn't coach eight straight Ivy League track and field championships, but my piece of advice to you is if you want to get better at running, you actually do have to run. Or if you're Parker Valby, maybe you just go on the arc trainer, but it doesn't, that might, it's my thing. You you do know you're going to need to run at some point to improve as, at a, as a runner. Correct. John, if you're going to start by pointing out my flaws, can I point out your flaws? I you was always do a, anyway, so go ahead. I wasn't waiting for the yes before I started. <laughs> because I'm extremely vain, I was re-listening to last week's podcast. And at the beginning... It shocked me. I mean, I've wondered for a long time, how can this catch Jonathan Galt be single? And then it hit me. It really hit me on the intro. You're like, wow, it's been an amazing year for Weldon Johnson. And as a dad, I was thinking, yeah, it has been. He was, his wife gave birth to a second daughter. How lucky is he? And 
his old age to have another new part of the family. And instead of saying that, John's like, you're Dallas Cowboys and you're Texas Rangers, blah, 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 blah. Folks, John, will Rob- be a, if you I'm going to defend myself here, Robert. A lot of my, fr- I'm 32 years old. I'm at the age where a lot of people in my life are having kids these days, um, mostly my friends, but also my boss. And I know that Weldon has two beautiful young daughters, but to be honest, it is hard for me to keep track of exactly what year all of my friends, you know, colleagues, childrens were were born. I know I've, I've there's been like probably a dozen of them between 2022 and 2023, and I didn't want to jump to conclusions and say, "Oh, congratulations on the birth of your daughter this year," when it actually happened in 2022. So. That's my defense is brain fog from all the childhood births and that sort of stuff in my life. Uh, but Weldon, I sh- belated congratulations to you and your wife on the birth of your second daughter in 2023. And I got a lovely Happy New Year card with your family on it this week. So uh, that confirmed to me. I was like, oh, yes, it did happen in 2023. Thank you, John. Thank you. I guess I'll be doing carpool pickup with John's buddies. I didn't realize skipping a generation here and speaking of generations let's run.com we're live on tiktok <laughs> created a tiktok account saturday eleven thirty. the chinese are, are no promotion didn't say anything about it and a random family member who i married said hey look at this sent me a t- an email within like 12 hours i didn't share any contact information anything so the Chinese will make us go popular with the youth on Let's Run on TikTok. Wait, well, did you just say a random family member who I married? I mean, usually we, in Western culture, we call that your wife. Oh, no, no. I was the officiant of my wife's cousin. Oh, oh you wedding. literally married them. Oh, I see. Yeah, Jack okay. and Elizabeth, I love you guys. They're not random family members. But it, it wasn't like this is like my immediate brother or something who texts me. I don't like get texts from these people very often. Yeah. And for those of you lost at the beginning, Robert Johnson, side co-founder, former pacer of the world women's world record in the marathon, a mighty have fallen. He's apparently went out and did a one mile time trial. We talked about it. We have a second podcast every week. You got to be a supporters club member to get that. Join today. Let's run.com slash subscribe. You get a second podcast from us every week. All the inside scoop. We broke down much more than Rojo's time trial. Yeah, I talked a lot about Courtney Frerichs uh, deciding to leave the Bowman Track Club. We got a great interview with her up on Let's Run today. But if you had listened to the Friday 15 last week, you would have heard the insights already because we discussed it on the show. So before we start about Elite running news. I want to go to our email of the week. I'll just read it off in full. Hey, my name is Tennessee, and I'm a sixth grader at Farley Elementary, and my dad listens to your podcast almost every weekend while he washes our dishes. He's the head cross-country coach for Washburn Rural High School and used to be a runner himself. I think it would be cool to give him a shout-out in your podcast for his 40th birthday. He's been coaching for about six years and has been running since high school. His name is Matthew Swedland. Thank you so much. Well, Matthew, happy 40th birthday. I don't know if it was today or yesterday or last week. I'm sure it was around this period. Hopefully this makes washing the dishes go by a little quicker. Happy birthday from 
letsrun.com and from your son, Tennessee. I think he gets a free supporters club membership. I'm sure he's already a supporters club member, probably, right? We'll extend him a year for free. Like, is there, you think there's a Washburn, like, urban high school and versus rural, and they have, like, a rivalry? Like, that was a really cool email. World's too self absorbed. We already have a sixth grader worrying about his dad. Welcome to the 40th, 40th, 40 club. I just joined it myself. It's not too bad. I thought right, it resets. Aren't you turning 40 again this year, Robert? I mean, that's how it works at your age, right? Yes, it's like Groundhog Day for me. I'm going to start having an annual Robert Johnson birthday party at the Orioles Stadium. 40th birthday party, like 5th annual, 6th annual, 7th annual. But we spent a lot of time, you've been, John, spent a lot of time recently talking to Bowerman or ex-Bowerman Tri Club members. Got the Courtney Fireworks interview up on the homepage. Grant Fisher podcast is coming on at the end of this one, interview with him. I guess I can't really break down Grant because people haven't heard it yet. Talk about it some more on Friday, but there is a great message board thread about the Fryericks interview. Fryericks, Courtney Fryericks. There's no Y in that name, Robert. Fryericks, Fryericks, Shalane, Shalane. Well, you said it right both times there. You didn't say Shalane. You said Shalane, Shalane. You're learning. Jakob, Jacob. Uh, names don't mean, like, like, I know who they are. Well, we, we clearly know you don't place much emphasis on names if anyone who listened to the Let's run year in review 2023 quiz episode last week would know that. But anyway, Robert, back to your point. Way hill, we Joe. But in this thread on Fryricks, people were like, great interview, but I was waiting for the big question. And I was like, wow. Once they wrote that, I kind of thought for a minute, I'm like, what are they talking about? And then I was like, wow, I was part of this. The whitewashing of history. Full disclosure, when we talked to Courtney and when we talked to Grant, not once did we talk about Shelby Houlihan. We didn't bring up the question. We didn't ask the question, anything about her doping suspension. It didn't even strike me to. And to be honest, I've vowed on this podcast the next time I talk to to Dathan Ritzenheim, I will still want to ask him, did you ever get a massage from Alberto Salazar? Because if he did, I'm going to be wondering if he was doped. Same thing with Gingon Rupp. But... Didn't even, I mean, I like Jerry. I think he runs a clean program. I still have my questions about Shelby, but it didn't even cross my mind to ask that question. And I was like, wow, have I gotten soft in my old age? But I guess I'm going to give you a pass because I was just like, we were talking about them leaving the group. This clearly, I guess we could have maybe asked, is it, did that play any role in it? But this is years after the fact, right? Should we apologize for not asking that question? I, I don't think we need to apologize for it. I did consider it, uh, asking the question, but. Also, she's leaving two and a half years after Shelby's suspension was announced. She's been supportive of Shelby throughout this entire process and remains supportive, as have most of the Bowman athletes. And I asked her, why did you leave? She gave a multitude of reasons in great detail. Not once did she mention Shelby. So I don't think this was a burning question that needed to be asked. Now, one poster on the message board, I appreciated this, said, you know, I don't think that necessarily was the big question. Courtney kind of noted she couldn't pinpoint when things changed. And I do feel that things dramatically changed for them after Shelby was busted. I think the question would have been, how did Shelby's doping bust change the dynamic of the club? Did you notice a shift after that? Do you believe the move to Eugene would have happened if she wasn't busted? I think that's an interesting way to go to. But to me, I think the shift 
from the people who are leaving, clearly the shift was the move to Eugene. And it wasn't Shelby's suspension because most of the athletes st- stuck around. I mean, there were, there were other athletes leaving in that span, but the ones who are leaving now, if they were going to leave because of the Shelby situation, I think they would have left a year or two ago. They wouldn't have stuck around and followed the club to Eugene and then left. Uh, and to answer the latter part of that question's that person's question, I don't think the team moving to Eugene and or- Jerry taking the Oregon job had anything to do with the Shelby Houlihan situation. I haven't asked Jerry that, but my read on the that is they aren't related. It's a good explanation. I agree. It's just it struck me that it was just weird to me that I, normally I'm the one always pushing that making you ask those questions, and I didn't even cross my mind yesterday when we were talking to Grant. But an interesting question to me would be just like, just to see what they think about it two and a half years later. Like from a personal standpoint, like if you believe she's innocent, this woman's been screwed. I guess she still have it in her system, but just kind of scary to think that if you truly believe she's innocent, it's just a tragedy for one of your friends, one of your teammates. But the interviews reminded me and I think everyone's going to enjoy the Grant Fisher interview. For both Grant and Courtney, I feel like, yes, it's an Olympic year, but these are mature 30-plus, oh, I guess Grant's still in his 20s, but mature athletes have been in pros for a while. And I didn't have any. I don't have any reservations about them leaving now. It seems to me like they're very confident in what they've done, very happy with the decision. Things are going very well. The training's going very well. And I think if you're a fan of either one of these women or any one of these top pros, and let's be honest, these are, right, other than nothing, well, America's two best chances for a medal in the distances. Are you forgetting Mr. Nagoose? Yeah, I was briefly. Okay, two of the top three. No, I think, Robert, the sentiment here is, I went to Bowman. I got a lot better. It's a system that works. It's produced results, but it's also a system where you kind of go along with the group dynamic. That's There's a benefit and drawback to being in a group, as Grant said. The benefit is you get all these world-class training partners. You don't have to go through every workout alone and everything like that. The drawback is your training is a little less customizable because these workouts are getting drawn up for, well, on the men's side at least, you know, five or six athletes as opposed to one. And I think for both Courtney and Grant, they reached a point in their career where they wanted to have a little bit more say in what they're doing. And they were going to find that outside of the team. So they decided to leave and it sounds like both of them are happier because of it, which I can understand. With Grant, is this proof that the athlete makes the coach? He's going back to be coached by his high school coach. Now, granted, first thing I did when I got out of college was want my high school coach to coach me, John Kellogg. He's a genius. Any aspiring runners out there want to make a go at it. I, I want to get John back out there in the coaching game. Help me almost make the Olympics. Well, not almost. It's debatable how you want to use that phrase. But, but Grant's coach, to my knowledge, has never coached a professional runner, right? Is, was there any concern that it won't work out with his high school coach? I mean, I asked him that. You'll hear his answer later, but he feels good about the situation. And 
I will say, I talked to Mike Scannell about 10 years ago. This was my one of my first stories I ever wrote for Let's Run.com. And struck me like, this guy knows what he's doing. He's got his long-term development uh, in mind. Obviously, there's going to be a step up from coaching a high school phenom to coaching one of the best distance runners in the world. But Grant feels pretty happy about where he's at at the moment. One thing we didn't talk about at the time, though, John, we had the same question was, I mean, obviously, he did a great job with them in high school, an amazing job. And they're very scientific, more scientific than Bowerman. They've got lactate. They're doing lactate monitoring, you know, and all of that. But this, to me, I mean, I love that aspect of it. Like, you don't have to have coached a lot of people to be able to coach someone to a gold medal. But the thing reminded me, this whole thing is reminding me of like deep down, like we like to give the coaches a lot of credit and the clubs. And it's more fun when there's an OAC and a BTC and UAC and Brooks Beast and all these things. Cause it's just easier to sort of think about the team a little bit and the brand and it reminds me of the team sports, but running is a very individual sport. And I love Courtney's quote. As much as the BTC does a really, really good job of having a very team-oriented approach and really being there for one another, track and field is a very individual sport and is your own individual career, and you're going to need different things. And my situation is going to be different than, truthfully, anyone else on the women's team in terms of that I'm married and certain things like that. So, Yeah, Courtney, if you listen to the interview or read the interview, it's not just a running centric decision she is married and her husband griffin is a, a coach of his, his own he was coaching at portland state now he's coaching with this puma elite uh team in north carolina and when they're making decisions she's not just thinking okay what is absolutely the only thing that's going to affect my running they're looking at like all right where are we living as a family are we putting down roots all this sort of stuff like there's more that just goes into it than just, oh, is this what does this do for my running career? Um, which I think was interesting to hear from her as well. Okay. But, but one thing about both of them to me that's weird is they both – it's not weird for Courtney, but they both seem to want more recovery in their training. Like Courtney said, historically, they kind of did the Tuesday-Thursday workout, Sunday long run. Tuesday-Friday. Schedule. Tuesday, Friday, Sunday, and Jerry was trying to put more workouts in, and she felt like that was a little bit much in her 30s. And Grant seems to be, you know, one of the things he he tells us is, hey, when you're on your own, you can, if you're not feeling it, you can run slower, you can push the workout back a day, you know, et cetera. So, all right, well, you can stay tuned. We've got the Grant Fisher interview coming up in its entirety uh, in the second half of the show. In terms of other news, there was another notable athlete, a world champion, in fact, who left his Nike-sponsored training group at the end of last year, and that's Donovan Brazier, the 2019 world champion of the 800 meters. And we've got an update on him on the website. Essentially, he, you know, I don't think he wanted to be in Portland anymore, and he wasn't really doing a lot of 
you know, running training the last couple of years anyway, because he's been dealing with injury. So he had a fourth surgery on his left foot in July 2023. This was the most interesting thing I think I learned from this article talking to someone in the Brazier camp. It was essentially they tried to get an initial Hagelin surgery in July 2022. They wanted to do a minimally invasive surgery so he can return to competition as quickly as possible. It didn't really take. They kind of redid it with a different surgeon, a renowned surgeon who's worked with you know a lot of top athletes, Derek Jeter, Stephen Curry among them. Uh, Dr. Robert Anderson is his name. And they had this surgery done in July 2023. It was a full Haglund's. And the hope is that he'll be able to come back healthy this time. Uh, sounds like things are progressing pretty well. They're feeling good about where he's at. He is back to running, not at full volume, but he's balancing running with cross-training. They haven't put a timetable on his return to racing. The idea is to get him healthy first. And yeah, obviously there's going to be a little bit of a time crunch with the Olympic trials coming up in June. You don't have that much more time. I'm kind of interested to see how they approach this because in 2021 and 2022 kind of rushed back. They wanted to be ready for the trials of the world championships. Will they try to rush him back again for the trials in 2024? Or if he's not ready, will they just say, Hey, the last two times we rushed you back, it didn't end up working. And you know, the injury just, remain would they consider sitting out the trials i don't know but it's interesting to ponder i think people are going to be following brazier closely because he's 26 years old and he's one of the greatest talents american middle distance ranks ever seen when i think of brazier i just remind myself talent doesn't go away this is one of the greatest talents we've ever seen in america hell world history to be honest i mean look how much he won worlds by more than a full second in 2019 but i mean haglins can take Things vary. It sounds like he's almost back to full running, which would be good in February. Then he could be fine for the summer. But Donovan, if you're listening, I know where you should go. It's kind of troubling to me that he, like, I know he hasn't been running, but he doesn't even have a coach now. It's like who's going to be leading the leading the training on the way back? Come up with a plan, like. Well, the plan is get healthy right now. And then once he's healthy enough to actually train seriously, then obviously he will need to find a coach. And I know who his coach should be. You said he spent some time with Craig Ingalls, California. And Craig's with Van Hoy at Cal Poly now. I think Ryan is a top mid-D coach. You could get into California. You could have Ingalls to hang out with. I'm glad that he visited. By the way, Stanford's John Lester just transferred from Stanford, middle of his junior year, to be coached by Van Hoy. Thinks he's such a good coach. Not many people just leave Stanford in great academic standing with only a three semesters left because they care so much about running. So I wish him the best because he was really good in high school. So I think that'd be a good fit, Robert. Uh because I agree with you. I think Van Hoy's a fantastic coach. They've got a nice growing group of middle distance runners. They have Aiden McCarthy, who was seventh in the NCAA 100 in June. So, and he'd be with Engels, who we know is very close with Donovan. So, uh, to me, it makes sense. Okay. The talk of Donovan Brazier not running the Olympic marathon trials 
excuse me, track trial is a bit depressing. Because I want to see him there. The Olympic trials are the greatest, one of the greatest things in the sport in the United States. Maybe the greatest in the United States. Without the Olympic trials, there's no Let's Run. I quit my job and moved to Flagstaff to train for the Olympic trials. Let's Run was started. We're here 24 years later. And the Olympic marathon trials, three weeks from this weekend. And at this stage of the game, I realize it's not about breaking down the trials. It's anticipation. Who's actually going to be running the trials? There's some speculation on the men's side. You know, Paul Chalima, will he make his marathon debut at the trials? If he runs, that's a huge story right at the get-go. Is Galen Rupp going to be ready? And then uh, I think the rest of the story on the men's side is sort of like it's kind of wide open. Obviously, some guys have done better than others. but And then usually the other storylines also is like, who's not running? We had a big name this week drop out. Emma Bates, I'm just asking you guys what she's most famous for. I think you're right, John. Leading the Boston Marathon last two, no, last year, two years ago? April 2023, the most recent Boston Marathon. I mean, deep into that race. Finished fifth. She's finished second in the Chicago Marathon. She went to Instagram. She's out of the trials. I got, I got to play the clip. Hi, guys. Um, I just wanted to give uh, all of you a little update um, on my training. I have some good news and some bad news. The news is I'm back to doing workouts with Team Boss. Bad news. Um, Sorry, I thought I could get through this. Bad news is I am withdrawing from the trials. I just know that there's not enough time to be where I need to be. So, another, another four years to wait. Um, for another Olympic team. Um, I'll be okay. Um, I'll be okay. Yeah, it's a difficult clip to listen to, Weldon, because normally when you see someone withdrawing, it's some sort of sad-looking Instagram photo from a race they were in or something, and it's saying, hey, hate it to make this announcement. But in this case, we actually she's talking to the camera, and you see what's going through her mind, and she knows she's about to make this announcement, and she still can't get through it. And she laid out exactly why. This is the Olympic trials. You get one shot every four years to run this race. And you can do everything right in the intervening four years. Like Emma Bates in 2020, she was seventh. She ran pretty well in the trials. She got better every year after that. 2021, second in Chicago. 2022, seventh at Worlds, runs a PB there. And 2023, fifth in Boston, runs another PB, 222.10. So... This is someone who you're looking at her trajectory. Like this is all shaping up for 2024 is going to be her peak Olympic marathon trials. And then she tears her plantar fascia in the Chicago marathon in October. That's it. She's no, she's not going to be ready to go. 
it's just an injury at the absolute worst time. And unfortunately, that is part of our sport, but it doesn't mean it hurts any less. It just sucks. You hope you want everyone to be healthy going into this race, and the reality is it just doesn't always happen for everyone. Yeah, she throws out that comment like, oh, I guess another four years. I mean, it's just so cruel. But also, it's it's the... Just the... The beauty of the trials, I don't know what you want to call it. A hack like myself can dream of the trials, think of making the, make the Olympics. And then a really good runner like Emma Bates has that same dream. But they don't just give it to you in your pedigree, anything like that. Because, right, if we had a selection process, there's a chance Emma Bates is just put on the team. She'll be ready for, by the Olympics. You know, you could easily make the argument she deserves to be on the Olympic team in America. I don't know. Uh, she's one of the top five for sure. In four more years, you're talking LA 2028. To me, that that that's that that seems like that used to be the sort of crazy Olympics they had announced out in the future, and then then soon that's going to be one we're all talking about. Yeah, it's very hard to make an Olympic team. You got to have so many things line up, especially in Olympic marathon trials. I mean, I was listening to Des Linden and Kara Gauch's podcast a week ago. They're talking about their experience of the trials, and I'm looking at these women. I'm like. I remember 2016. I'm like, Des was definitely making that team, right? Like, or t- going into 2012, like, she's among the favorites. She's just gotten Boston second at Boston the previous year. And they're not, they're thinking, oh, it was just a relief. Like, that's still like, hey, I was in position to make it. And it was still incredibly hard for them to do. Yeah. It's even for the best athletes, it's not easy to make these teams. And then, you know, to have the, to not even have the opportunity. To try to make the team, that's going to be the toughest thing. I was incredibly touched by Emma's statement. I embedded the entire video on the homepage and then posted it in the message board thread. And I was kind of shocked. Some people had like no sympathy for her on there, being kind of a-holes. But I'll admit, I got to agree with some of the critics. I mean, I loved hearing from her and the passion and the emotion in her voice, but like the world is weird, man. We've got background music now. You're announcing a crushing decision and you've got to put background music on your Instagram. Like that's weird to me. And I feel like we're living in a performative society and we're seeing the mass psychosis of the teens. There was a, there was a, I sent a, a tweet to all my friends this week from some random person who's got a hundred followers. Someone had a, a chart of the teen mental crisis going up since 2012, which is people are trying to basically blame it on the iPhones. And this guy's got a hundred followers. Jeremy Wood says there can be more than one reason for that, but all you have to do is talk to people. People who grew up with high speed internet are different, almost alien. I grew up with TV, but watching many of the same TV show my parents did, kids watch nothing you'd know and have few cultural connections to older generations. So old Rojo here could go on a rant, but hey, I know I make my living on the internet and the internet has made something like Let's Run possible. Like you used to be in a town, there might be like three guys, that, three women, three, three diehard runners that really follow the sport. Now you can follow the sport 24-7. But I don't know. I, I had, to, I, I just think like 
I don't know. Small, small criticisms for me, I guess, on this. Like, do we really need background music Probably, on this? Who, if that's how she wants to process it, she's can do it. This is a massive announcement she's making, and if she, that's how she wants to deal with it. It's fine. I'm gonna pull your leg here, take you out of the rabbit hole you're about to dive down. Just whatever. Like, she made an announcement, and there was background music. Oh, the horror. Uh, my browser refreshed, and I came back, and I was like, "Oh my god, is is he saying what I think he's saying?" It makes it more dramatic, too. Andrew Brick Johnson, who do, does the intro music of our podcast, he's like a, does it for a lot of Hollywood movies and stuff. I'm just more aware. Watch any movie now. You don't even realize it. Any dramatic part of it, they got music. They got something in the background. That announcement would have been gut-wrenching without it, but it's even better with it. So we're talking about it. Okay, I'll take the L. I'm going to start doing graphics now, like the top five of Let's Run, where Rojo was right, where Rojo was wrong. I am the most, how did I describe myself a few weeks ago? If you're not a regular listener, I said the most unfiltered voice in track and field. Wait, I mean, Robert, I, that's you, you, you're going to be able to find five instances of yourself being wrong? You might need to outsource that to Mia Weldon, who can actually call you out on it, because I feel like you don't like to... <laughs> Admit losses unless you're presented with the clear evidence. But I think after this weekend, the Houston half, we, we need to come up with a list and really start thinking about it. Like, how many people are the big contenders? You know, I think we had like A, B, and C team, like the contenders, the dreamers, and then everybody else. Yeah. Houston will be interesting. We'll do a preview of that on our Friday 15 show for Let's Run.com supporters, club members that you can sign up, Let's Run.com slash subscribe. That race is on Sunday. Galen Rupp is running it. Sarah Hall is running it. Then we've got a couple interesting debuts. Wayne Kaladi, Mohamed, neither of them obviously running the U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon. But we'll talk about that on Friday. One other thing, Weldon, you mentioned the name Paul Chalimo. And I was like, this is, like you said, one of the most fascinating potential athletes in the field. And he is listed as entered so i reached out to him i was like paul are you running the trials you know they're three weeks away i imagine he would know at this point if he's running them or you know if he's started training for a marathon he said hello indeed my name is on the starting list but that doesn't mean that i will have my foot on the line it only means that at the time i speak to you there is a possibility that i will be present this day or maybe not so Paul is keeping things cryptic. I mean, that would be really interesting to me is if I'd like to know if he's running, but I think it would be kind of cool if like he just keeps it a secret and then suddenly on like three days before the trial, someone at the Orlando airport, it's like Paul Chalimo seen flying into Orlando. Actually, track and field is probably not popular enough for that to be happening. Like if this was the NFL or like the Shohei Otani situation, you'd have like paparazzi or all these people if Paul Chalimo just gets on a flight and lands in Orlando, they're probably not going to be that people like, Oh, he's here for the trials, but it would be fine. If like the day before the trials, he just shows up and like, yep, yeah, I'm running him. deal with it. I mean, John, he could, he needs to play this all the way out. I agree. Stick with it, Paul. I mean, he's one of the more entertaining guys on the U S side. I'm trying to think of some of the other stuff he does besides his salute celebrations, but Sean, your memory's better than mine. Think of those, but, he could even show up because, you know, there might be sponsorship opportunities in Orlando. 
he can still go to the line, start, pretend, and then drop out or something like, or go for the race. So I, I want him keeping his mouth completely quiet till the gun goes off, and who knows what's going to happen. This is excellent. Our sport needs this a little drama, a little. I do think it could be a little difficult though at the end of the race. You know, Paul likes to drift out a little wide. The guys might not be right on his shoulder in the final hundred meters because the road is wider than the track, that sort of thing. So I don't know if he's going to be able to Tokyo drift his way to the win. But yeah, I think it would be fascinating if he runs. Really exciting. He's got the talent to make the team, but can he run a good marathon? Who the hell knows? So it will be really interesting. We need to get Paul together with the message board poster from September, still a hobby jogger. The guy, remember him? He qualified with a 216 PB and he started an eight page thread about whether he should just lead the Olympic trials and then fake an injury. Get him and Paul to run together, go out in front, monopolize the TV time. It's amazing Robert mentioned this thread because I was looking at the most upvoted post. 2023 the most upvoted post of the year is from that thread i guess this i guess almost by definition this is the post of the year on latron.com from the thread should i lead the first half of the olympic trials then drop poster go big or go home devastated says the purists will say run your best race and take pride in finishing the best place you can your true friends will tell you to roll the dice, lead the first half on rocket fuel pace, and be that douchey white guy who wears a Kenyan singlet. If when you drop out, make it dramatic. Do it before the chase back gets to you so it doesn't look like you outdid yourself, got caught, and just gave up. Have a limo waiting for you at a predetermined location, steeplechase leap over a course barrier, dive straight in your getaway car, and don't post a single run on Strava until January 13th, 2025, when Shelby Houlihan's doping ban expires. The more questions your dropout produces, the better. 469 upvotes, six downvotes. I love it. Speaking of upvotes, it looks like I just got a text while we were recording. Most upvoted users of the last year. I don't see Jonathan Galt on this list anywhere. I don't, I don't post as much as you do. Robert Johnson appears to be third place. 26,000 upvotes last year on the message board for me. It's number three in all of the Let's, let's Run Internet. Who was ahead of you? Thoughts Leader had 31,000. John Wesling Harding had 29,000. Now, I will admit I'm somewhat controversial. I have way more downvotes than anyone else in this top 10. I had 9,600 downvotes. I'm still, you know, a net of 16,000 upvotes compared to downvotes, which is also third. But no one else in this list has more than 3,600 downvotes. So, you know, that's the thing. A lot of people only, well, you see it all over the world. I mean, come on. People self-censoring. People only say things that they know others will agree with. Or will get, I'll just generally, even now my old age, I'll self-censor. Like, I was going to my friend's birthday party. And it was at a New Year's party. I'm like, who else is going to be there? Try to figure out which topics were allowed to be talked about. Anyways, if you don't want people Knowing what you're talking about on the internet, you need a VPN. Use the VPN we use at Let's Run. Go to let'srun.com slash VPN. Let'srun.com slash VPN. 
Wow, seamless ad integration, Robert. You're really stepping up your game in 2024. You're a vital presence on the message board. You, you say, sometimes you say what people, other people don't necessarily want to hear, but sometimes they need to hear it. So I appreciate it. My real self-censoring is coming when I now, if it's political, it's under a fake name. I don't see the positive in that. But it was seamless ad reads. I forgot to, to, I think, we have, unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, we have a phone number. If you're new to the show, we want to hear from you. Who do you think is going to make the Olympic marathon team? Give us a call and tell us. 844-LUTS-RUN-844-538-7786. If we okay. play your voicemail, you'll get a free shirt. By the way, talking about making the sport interesting, we had our <coughs> bold predictions recently in one of the podcasts. I got an email, or we got an email. I don't know if this guy's British. He's got a lot of British talk in this thing. Actually, not a lot. Maybe he's not British. Anyways, Philip Large has written in. Says, guys, I just want to put this down on paper so when they come true, you can officially bow down to my superior knowledge. And these were pretty interesting. And the number one scares the hell out of me. I spent the 20 minutes before this podcast trying to figure out about this. Jakob's injury is worse than predicted. He won't make the Olympics. Do we know if he's even running, John? I, I, I said last week, people who follow people on Strava should be banned. But if Jakob's on Strava, I'm going to demand that you follow him. Like I was reading, like it's a sacrum injury. I was looking up what your sacrum is. That seems kind of scary to me. Do we know anything, John? Have you heard anything? You're more media than me. I thought he was back to running, but I don't know for sure, honestly. So that's a possibility. And my Norwegian newspaper didn't seem to have anything on it. I did find an interesting article in Athletics Weekly. They talked to Jakob's brother at a European cross country on record when he was 12th. He's like, I just think there was too much in his life last year. Like dad drama, getting married, building a house. And he thought that that's why he kind of, he got sick and screwed. I thought he got unlucky in the world. But his other predictions are UK men sweep the 1500 Kerr white men and mills. Not sure what happens to year in goose. Mary, Mary Mara wins 800-meter gold and breaks the world record. He has the same one that one of you two have. Neither Kipton McCork or Kipchoge medal. Noah Lyles doesn't make the U.S. men's 100-meter team. I mean, I think all of these are possibilities, to be honest, except for his final two. You ready for these? Faith Kip Yegon doesn't win any golds. I mean, that's just banking on an injury. Come on. Who, who's beating her in the 1500? Well, Teji? Like, Safan Hassan. She did I lose to some. Hassan's beating her. I don't think Sagai's beating her. Come on. Well, she did lose to some youngster right in the road mile championship. Yeah, when she was sick. Around. She lost to Welteji in the road mile. Well, that's the one thing. If, De- if Deremi Welteji is like the Kip Yegon of the 2020s, maybe. But I think that's, I mean, it's a bold prediction. I'll give him that. And then Alicia Monson medals in the 10K. I mean, I don't think that's that much bolder than any of the other, any of the other ones. She was fifth last year. The no Lyles ones actually fascinates me that he doesn't make the team in the 100. Because that, that could happen. I mean, I know he's the reigning world champion, but he tried out for the 
Olympic team in the 100 in 2021 and didn't make it. So, and the US is really good in that event. I think he'll be on the team, but you know, would it would it be a, this massive like how the hell did this happen? The, Noah Lyles isn't on the team. I I could see a world where it happens. Very reasonably. He was only third this year. Oh, by the way, remember when he said COVID? I was kind of skeptical of that excuse. I think he was legit. The COVID did hurt him in the trials. Yeah. But for some reason, people aren't believing the Yaka sickness story. Some of them aren't. Well, people don't like it because he was showboating in the semifinals of the 1500. All right. Another news item this week. I guess they posted this maybe last week, but it's over Christmas. So people weren't really paying attention. USATF has released its revised Olympic marathon selection criteria or Olympic marathon team selection criteria. And it appears to be in line with what they told us a few weeks ago. If you guys forget what happened, they announced the criteria. It was fairly unclear, a little bit confusing. We reached out to them for clarification. Amy Begley from USATF explained, Hey, the top three people, at the trials, as long as they've broken to 11.30 by the conclusion of the trials, they're going to be on the team if we get three spots unlocked. Right now, there's only two men's spots unlocked, but the U.S. is likely to get a third at the end of the qualification period, the end of April. That's what this new criteria states, essentially, is the top three finishes who are under to 11.30 by the conclusion of the trials. If the U.S. has three spots, they're going to be going. It was kind of interesting that they made all the changes in red and kind of kept in the initial stuff, but some people are having trouble understanding it, but I think that's what it says, Robert. You're being far too gracious to them, John. Basically what happened is they published a document several, about two months ago that said that they were not going to be honoring the order of selection at the Olympic trials or may not be honoring the order of selection of the trials. I called them out on it and they've now revised it. That wasn't what they meant to do, but that's what they published. They, they so poorly wrote, written, wrote a document that the lawyers at USATF, the USOPC, and Max Siegel all saw, and, and they still didn't understand what they were writing. But yeah, the good news is if you're eligible to go to the Olympics and you're top three at the trials, you're going to go. They're going to honor the order of finish at the Olympic trials for the men and the women. The women already got three. And the 211.30... They didn't anticipate that. That also means, though, if, if you're like someone like Scott Fobble, who's going to be ranked in the top 80, but has not run to 1130, you can go as well. So basically, all you need to do is try to run well at the trials. Right. But if you, I mean, if you haven't broken to 1130 at the trials, Scott Fobble's already got a high world ranking, but there might be some, like someone like Paul Chalimo, he's going to need to run under 21130 at the trials because otherwise he's not going to be able to go. Right. And, and this is, one of the things I lead the Grant Fisher interview with, like, is Grant Fisher, spoiler alert, will not be running World Cross Country or World Indoors this year. Why? Because he needs to pick up a 10,000-meter qualifier for the Olympics, which I totally get. But I, in, in my mind, why in the world do we have a system that Grant Fisher, one of the world's greatest runners, needs to pick up a ten, run a 10,000-meter race in the middle of nowhere in front of 300 fans instead of going to a world championship. Like they should have a copy. Like it should just be by country where 
if you've broken 13 flat in the last year and you run a world's, <laughs> you've got the 10,000 standard. Like I, I know it's hard to get the numbers right and whatever, but this madness over 211, 30, 27 flat, it's bad for the sport. And I know it's more of an American thing where we actually have enough people for trials to be drama filled. But it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to force athletes to chase standards, then those and those standards are really hard these days. Uh, they're going to say, all right, I can get into really good shape and I can either go do it to run a standard or I can do it to run world indoors. And when the Olympics is the one you're chasing, you're going to go get the standard. It's, I, I do understand it from his perspective. By the way, speaking of the Olympic marathon trials, Robert, I've got the Orlando weather on my phone. I've been adding it to my you know list of cities that I monitor on my weather app. And I, I've been taken to checking it every so often saying, oh, because you know, we're only three weeks out. What's the weather like these days? Right now, we're recording this. It's 12.01 p.m. Eastern time. The Olympic marathon trials will be entering the final miles right now as we speak. Current conditions in Orlando, Florida, 77 degrees and... 21 mile per hour winds with gusts of up to 42. Like that is really tough conditions running. It's hot and super windy at the moment. Like now tomorrow it's going to be different. It's 63 degrees high, but right now 77 degrees. Like this is something we could see in the Olympic marathon trials. Uh, It could also be like what it's going to be tomorrow or the next day where it looks like it's going to be close to ideal for marathoning. But it's kind of an interesting game for me to just check like, oh, would the weather suck to run a marathon in right now in Orlando or would it be fine? Today it sucks. Well, I assume if it was today, they would have had to move it up. By the way, have they published that criteria? How? What criteria they'll move it up on? I actually do have some information on that, Robert. So... The criteria for moving the start time is a wet bulb temperature of 82 degrees. And the wet bulb thing always confuses me. It takes into effect like sun exposure and humidity and all that sort of stuff. I'm not sure. It's a pretty high bar to clear. Like 77 degrees, I I don't think you'd get a wet bulb of 82 if it's 77 degrees. So my guess is they wouldn't move it. And I think the data they showed was the last 12 years, it hasn't been 82 degrees uh, wet bulb on February 3rd for any of those years. So it does seem like it's unlikely the trials are going to get moved. I think it's 77. If it's 77 degrees, I don't think they'd move it up. Wow. This really could be a blank show. Yeah, you're right. I'm looking at the wet bulb temperature right now. Despite the fact that there's 20 mile an hour winds. Oh, no. Well, gust of 20, 18 right now. The wind isn't going to make a difference though, right? I know, but I would not be running. I would not be running running to one. If I was like a guy hoping to get under 211.30, I wouldn't be running a marathon right now. Wet bulb temperature right now is 74.9. Up, just up to 75.2. It's changing as we speak, John. Well, I may have a new website, John. This thing is live. Like it's changing as we speak orange.weatherstem.com I mean you do claim to be the let's run weather expert so I'm going to be relying on you heading into the trials Robert and 
you know, how much does this affect things? Is this, you know, all that sort of stuff. Okay. One last topic before we get to the Grant Fisher interview, that would be the Dubai Marathon, which took place over the weekend in Dubai. And it's kind of interesting. We were talking about this off air, Robert. You know, a few years ago, Dubai used to be a big deal on the running calendar, right? It would be the kind of the unofficial seventh major. You'd get fast times, but Kaylee would run it every so often. There'd be hype about it. The prize money was the biggest first place prize in the world of marathoning, $200,000. Hailey G used to run this race. Like, we'd hype it up. And the last couple of years, I think COVID had an effect. They, there were a couple of changes in terms of like, who was organizing the race or who was supporting the race, so that sort of thing. And they cut the prize money a bit, so it wasn't getting quite the same attention. But this year's race, they made a push to kind of say, hey, we got some good athletes, should be good. It produced some pretty interesting results, uh, notably in the women's race, where we had a debut marathon record. Tigis Katema of Ethiopia, who is 25 years old, won the race in her debut, 2.16.07. That's more than 40 seconds faster than the previous debut record of Latesen Baguide from 2022 Valencia. And there was nothing to indicate this race was coming because she has never run more than, she's never raced more than 10K, never even done a half marathon. Before this, one of her most recent races was... Actually, her most recent race before this marathon was 15-17 for 13th place in the Brussels Diamond League 5K on September 8th. And her background in running, she's run four flat for 1,500 in 2021. And in 2016, she was the bronze medalist in the 800 meters at the World Junior Championships. So like Safan Hassan and like Tigis Tsefa, who is one of her training partners, she is following this 800 meter to marathon pipeline that is suddenly overflowing at the elite marathon level. John, how dare you insult her like that? She was the winner of the Guardian Mile in Cleveland last year. Picked up 4,000. Sh- I mean, this is crazy. This just shows how much the sport has changed. I mean, I'm sure other people, red sirens are going off. Like, this is impossible. But I think the sport has changed. It's just, this is nuts. I don't even know how she was getting in the Brussels 5000 last year. She, she's, what's her 5K PB here? Like, I, I don't know how she got in that meet to begin with. But this is even more shocking. Then in her first marathon, no half marathon, she drops a 216, boom. I mean, this training group has figured has figured out something else that no one else has, or something. Or I, I, I need to talk to our coach. Yeah, Gamedu Dedefo. I mean, his training group is incredible. You've got Asefa, the world record holder. You've got Amane Bariso, who's two fourteen fifty eight, the world champion, number five all time. And now you've got Katema, two sixteen oh seven, number eight all time. Now that said. I feel like for some people, there's still a sticker shock seeing like 216.07, like, oh my God, that's incredible. For me, I see that time now and I'm not as dazzled because we're living in a 211 world now. Like, if you think back a few years ago when 
the world record was 215.25 by Paula Radcliffe. If someone we'd never heard of came out and debuted in 219, we'd be like, wow, that's pretty crazy. But also, like, you know, it's still four minutes off the world record. And that's kind of my take on this one, too, is, okay, wow, she's come out of nowhere. It's kind of crazy. But also, it's more than four minutes off the world record. So I would like to hear from her camp, from Tedefo, like, how did this happen? Is it like Tiggy's Decepho where she was in the wrong event all these years or what? I, I don't know. But my mind isn't as blown as much because we're just living in a different world of marathoning. That still makes her the eighth fastest woman of all time. I mean, just these record books have just been rewritten so much the last year. We had Paula Radcliffe's 215.25 was the world record for 16 16 years. years. Then you had Bridget Koskai's 214.04, which was in 2019, and that just sat there for a bit. And now of the top 10 times in the world, everyone in the except or the top 10 performers, excuse me, they're all in the last two years. I think it's cool. I mean, it's amazing. She can run a marathon at what? 5.11 pace? But a 5K at 4.55 pace? But, you know, Weldon sort of says some people are thinking drugs. Well, okay, well, why wouldn't she? If she had on some super drug, why wouldn't she just take the super drug that had her rock the 1500? Admittedly, there's a lot more money in the marathon. Well, not, if you're one of the best, you know, I, I do think, I, I have a wonder, like, what happened to all the Kenyan men in the 1500? Could be the drug testing's up over there, but also could be that unless you're one of the very top people in the world, it's like, there's not much money in that if you're Kenyan, if you're Ethiopian. But, I mean, this is wild. She's running the Guardian Mile. By the way, I was also looking up, she ran and lost a mile a few days later in Brooklyn. The... Brooklyn Mile presented by Hoka. And I don't know how this was allowed to happen. I remember seeing this at the time. She raced Worker Who Getachew. Getachew won it. In case you don't remember who that is, that's the 2022 Steeplechase World Championship silver medalist who we all believe is XYDSD because the new rules came out and she immediately stopped running the steeple. But I remember someone on the message board or someone emailed us like, why is she running road races? The rules are supposed to still apply here. So she did lose to get at you, 431 to 433. Runs a 15, 17, 5K, and then somehow just basically keeps that pace going for the whole marathon. So cool story there. Did we even mention the men's race? Not yet. Men's race has got its own cool story. Pretty crazy. Yeah, Adesu Gobina, who is apparently the nephew of Ruti Aga, uh, elite Ethiopian marathoner. Officially, this guy is 19 years old. This is also his debut marathon. He only had one, I mean, talk about out of nowhere. This, I mean, this is what used to happen at Dubai. You'd just get these random, you'd get 20 pretty good Ethiopians thrown in there. One guy that no one had heard of would show up and win. I remember 10 years ago, it was Sergei Mekinen, who was also reportedly 19 at the time, won this race in like a world junior marathon record. Now, this guy, Gobina, his only result in his 
athletics profile before this was 60-51 for third in the Delhi Half Marathon in October. He shows up, wins it in 205-01, converted javelin thrower, uh, according to some of the recaps we've seen after the race. Quote of the week. I think I made the right decision to switch to the marathon from the javelin. I would agree. I, I read somewhere that so his I mean Rudy Aga was the runner up for the women's race in Dubai. She's quite accomplished. That he would sometimes run with the women. They kind of noticed he had some talent. He was like in a B group. He was getting beat by women. Then he just started training a little bit, and now he's doing pretty well at Delhi Half and winning Dubai. Yeah, the Gulf News has a nice story on him. The coach saw the potential of me and moved me into the men's section for B-level runners, not with the elite A-level runners. I continue my training, and now I'm a Dubai Marathon winner. The age thing, I think, just draws skepticism because people are like, hey, let's run. A 19-year-old just ran 205.01, and nobody cares. Adusu says, the race was not difficult. It was a bit windy until 36 kilometers. But other than that, the race is relatively easier than it, even though this is my first marathon. So there it is. It's very easy to run a 205 marathon, which would be the American record at 19 if you're a former javelin thrower in Kenya. They also said he threw the javelin five meters. That can't be right. I, I'm pretty sure I could throw the javelin five meters. That's 15 feet. I think they. I think something got left off. Yeah, I saw, it's probably but, something. Five might be the second number in that. I saw that. I, I, I saw a different number thrown out that was much better. The marathon has just changed so radically. Like I, I was saying... On the woman's side, I got it now. 13 of the 15 fastest times of all time are in the last two years. The men were seeing some crazy times, but we haven't seen it, essentially. The, the one place we have not seen it is with the American men. So hopefully some of that changes soon here in three weeks. So I was glad that there were some significant results from Dubai because I kind of had stopped paying attention to Dubai. But John hinted at it, but... It, the biggest reason is it's just not the same quality as it used to be. Kind of was the unofficial extra major. But now the first place is 80000 When you're paying 80000 versus 200000 you're getting a different quality field. And this just, I don't know. I don't need more races. I definitely don't want the Abbott World Marathon majors expanding to Sydney and diluting their fields even more. I need more races that matter, more races that are interesting. All right, guys. Well, I think that is going to do it for you know our news of the running world this week. We've got Houston coming up, as I said earlier. We'll have a preview of that on the Friday 15. Unless you guys have anything else, we're going to move on to interview with Grant Fisher. As always, Grant was thoughtful, generous with his time. We appreciate it. I think you guys are all going to enjoy this. We dive into everything you wanted to know. Why do you leave Bauman? Who's coaching him? Where is he living? What is he thinking about for the 2024 season? You get to all of it. You can enjoy that interview right now. We are very pleased now to be joined by Grant Fisher. Grant is the 2017 NCAA champion at 5,000 meters, the 2022 US champion at 5,000 meters, the American record holder in the 3,000, 5,000, and 10,000 meters. 
and he will be opening his 2024 season by running the two mile at the Milrose Games on February 11th, where he will be squaring off against 1500 meter world champion Josh Kerr. And the folks at Milrose were kind enough to help us coordinate this interview. So Grant, thanks for joining us. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, it should be really exciting, Milrose Games, as it always is. And you haven't run that since 2019 when you won the 3000 as a college senior at Stanford. So why was this the right year to retire? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've always wanted to run Milrose again. It's a, you know, it's a great event. Um, one of the best, or in my opinion, the best indoor meet uh, that they have in the U.S., it's a gold level meet. You always have really good competition. And um, I love racing at the Armory. I've raced there since high school. So um, yeah, it's kind of fun, you know, popping over to the big city and um, having a crack against some really good competition and not worrying about time too much and just racing and uh, letting the field take care of itself and having a good time. So um, yeah, it, it's really good timing this year. Um, you know, unfortunately the indoor seasons, they, they, they're squeezed pretty tight. You know, it's really hard to do uh, you know, a fast race, a competitive race, a USA's uh, world indoors, and, you know, maybe knock out a 10K standard all in the same month block, basically. Um, so you kind of have to pick and choose, but uh, I really like the timing of Milrose this year. So yeah, I'm excited to head back and, and two miles will be fun. Like you said, it, you kind of have, you know, a, more of a 10K guy like me stepping down, you've got 1500 guys stepping up. You have more pure 5K, 3K guys uh, kind of in their sweet spot. So it's, it's going to be fun. Yeah, I wouldn't sell yourself that short two miles. I mean, 725 for 3,000 meters is pretty uh, pretty freaking fast. So I'm curious, Josh didn't talk... Sorry, you didn't talk about time. You say you're not thinking about time. But Josh Kerr has already said, you know, I want the world record in this event. It's 803 uh, by Mo Farah from a few years ago indoors. Have you, like, you haven't thought about that at all? You're just going there to race? Or is that in the back of your mind at all? Uh, I mean, it's certainly in the back of my mind. Um, you know, when you're in a field where people are talking like that, you know, you kind of have to set your expectations to that. But, you know, the nice thing when someone else is talking about time is you don't really have to think about it that much. Um, so if if everyone else is looking at the clock, looking at the time, making sure it's fast, then all I have to do is race. Um, I, I don't think this race is necessarily set up for me. I think I was kind of a late add to it. Um, so I'm not dictating the pace at all. Um, if the guys want to try to run 803, then... Uh, I'll hang on as long as I can and try to kick at the end. Um, you know, if the pace slows and we end up running 815, I'm going to try to win anyway. Um, so, you know, there, there's times in the year where I'm going to be really focused on time. One of them will be the 10K outdoors this year uh, in in uh, California in March. Um, Got to knock out that standard. Um, that's probably the main goal of this winter block for me. Um, but yeah, in in that field, there's enough talented guys um, enough people that want the race to be fast, it'll be fast. And if, if I'm in there to race, then I know it'll go well for me. So, um, things usually work out when, uh, when you just race. And you mentioned before we started this interview, you were going to be doing a 5k at BU, I think five days after Milrose. So is, is that your full winter racing schedule? It'll be Milrose, BU and the 10. Yeah. As of right now, that's the plan. Um, so yeah, the Milrose, I think is on the 11th of February. Um, the BU 5k I'm planning on doing is on the 16th of February. Uh, so I'll just stay on the East coast in that time. I uh, just kind of have a little sea level block and then back up, uh, to altitude for about a month leading into the 10k. Um, and yeah, it, 
getting getting the 10k standard is by far by far the main target of this winter kind of season um can't really call it indoors because the outdoor races uh or the 10k is an outdoor race but um yeah that, that's by far the main goal um i have the 5k standard already so i don't have that hanging over my head which is nice um but um want to get some some hard efforts in have a little time at sea level as well and then um also kind of get used to two races in a short little block like that um you kind of got to do that at usa's um ideally everything goes well and goes well and i'll be doing that at the olympics too um you know you got to be able to race hard and then a few days later race hard again um so just getting used to that so you know you mentioned earlier the world the, the word the words world indoors and i mean one of my big things is a fan of the sport is you know everyone's like we only have one meet that matters it's worlds or the olympics and i'm like well how do we get people to pay more attention to these other things? So I was pleased you mentioned it. Like you knew it was a world indoor year. It's also a world XC year. But you know, when I was talking to John before the interview, I'm like, do you think he's going to do that? And he's like, no, he needs the standard. And then when he said that to me, I'm like, okay, I totally give I'm giving you a pass for skipping. You know, you're a pro you've never run world indoors or world XC. But to me, it's absurd that Grant Fisher has to even chase the standard. I mean, I, I don't want to put you on a pedestal, but I should. <laughs> so what, like, if you didn't have to chase the standard, would you go to World Indoors? Would you go to World XC? I mean, what if they had a rule that anyone that's broken 13 minutes in the last year that goes to World Indoors is automatically has the standards? Like, it, it just seems kind of crazy to me that we have one of the top four or five guys in the world needing to chase the standard. Do you think, do you agree with me? Um, you know, it, yeah, there, there's layers to that discussion. Um, you know, to your point, if you want people to care about a meet, you need good athletes there. Um, and in order to get good athletes there, you have to incentivize it. And, um, right now for me and, and most people in the world, the incentive, the big carrot in front of you is the Olympics. And, um, to get to the Olympics, you either need points or you need a time. And, um, I don't really have any 10 K points right now, so I need the time. And, uh, in the 10 K, the standard is really aggressive. I mean, 27 flat, that's really, really steep. Um, so you need to be pretty careful about, uh, being pretty tuned up for that race. And, you know, it's a 10 K as well. So you don't have infinite opportunities as far as, um, you know, different races where you're going to have this 27 flat race or, um, times when you want to put your body through that kind of stress as well. So you kind of have to, um, as an athlete, you have to look at, you know, what are, what's my goal? Um, and you work backwards from there. So my goal is to be on the podium in Paris. And in order to do that, I need to make the U S team. And in order to make the U S team, I need a standard or points. And, uh, the points are, uh, you know, a little more of a, a shot in the dark, but the standards a little more solid. Um, you know, if I didn't have that in front of me, having to get the standard, then yeah, U S indoors, world indoors, world cross, um, all those things would be on the table. Um, and, and those would be really fun. And I, I think it's a shame that, you know, not the very best athletes are at every single one of these events. Um, but it, it's just a, it's an incentive conversation. Um, and even boiling down to our contracts, I, you know, you're not really allowed to talk about contracts, but I guarantee everybody's contract incentivizes the Olympics the most, um, over world indoors or world cross. So nobody's gonna, um, you know, take big risks, uh, in an Olympic year like that. Um, you know, in an off year where there's no world outdoor track championship, no Olympic championship, 
Um, I think those events can flourish a lot more, um, or maybe the timing can be a little better that, um, or, or the qualification system can be a little more, uh, malleable, I guess, uh, to allow athletes to kind of race at the championships without sacrificing, uh, those standards that we need to get. 2026, I mean, this is skipping ahead a couple of years at this point, but the U.S. is hosting the World Cross Country Championships that year. It's right. going to be in January, I think January 10th. For you, it's looking at it's like something, your schedule, like, does that fit into a time where you or like other pros who are kind of track focus will be like, hey, this is a good time for me? Or do you think that makes it like less likely that you would do it compared to its traditional March date? Um, I think that would make it more likely actually, um, especially being at home, uh, you know, in the U S yeah, that's, that's a big draw. Um, whether or not there's a financial incentive or not, um, that's just a big draw that it, it's cool to represent your country in your home country. Um, I really enjoyed that in Eugene. Um, and you know, it'd be really fun to do that in cross, um, cross country is something I miss a lot from college. Uh, and you know, hardly any pros do it. Um, there's a few select races that people do, you know, often in Europe, but, um, you know, it's not as, not as big for, for American based distance riders, but I, I would love it to be, um, you know, dream scenario for me would be like that you could hit every stop on the diamond league tour, hit every championship and, you know, everything's good. But unfortunately it's really hard to schedule out a training cycle that way. And in a sport where, you know, it, by far our biggest publicity and our biggest opportunity is the Olympics. And it only comes every four years. So you really don't want to mess around too much, uh, in those years. It'd be different if every year you had something of that caliber, um, or, you know, worlds are big as well, but they're not the Olympics. Um, you know, Olympic years, you're not going to see people deviate as much. Which is why I don't get why, why, the, why they, they have world indoor world XC and the Olympic year. It seems like, I get 2026. That makes perfect year, but having it this year just seems crazy to me, but I guess we're not in charge, are we? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to get to something I'm sure a lot of the people listening to this podcast want to know about, which is your current training setup. Obviously you made a change after the 2023 track season. So can you tell us where you're based right now? Who's coaching you? Are you part of a team or a group? training partners, all that stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So after the 2023 track season, um, so I finished that up at pre-classic. So that was, uh, mid September or so. Um, so for a little bit after that, I was, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do and yeah, ultimately decided to make a change. And, um, I moved out to park city, Utah. Um, so I'm based there now I'll base there, uh, basically year round, except for right now, um, January and February, I'll be in Flagstaff. Uh, just because it snows a little too much in Park City uh, to train there in those months. Um, I'm working with my old high school coach, Mike Scannell. Um, I have a really good relationship with him going back to when I was, you know, before I was even running when I was a kid. Um, and we have a great relationship. I I really like his approach to coaching and it's a really collaborative um, system that we have. And I've really enjoyed it so far. Um, you know, obviously... We were just talking about risks in an Olympic year, you know, not deviating from the plan in an Olympic year, but, um, I was ready for a change and, uh, I haven't regretted it at all so far. It's been really, really nice. And, uh, 
I miss training with uh, the Bowerman guys quite a bit. Uh, you know, when you, uh, I guess that was another piece of your question. I'm training almost all alone right now. Um, most of my workouts are solo. Uh, when I'm in Park City, uh, Matt Centrowitz lives up there. So we'll hop in together quite a bit. Um, and now that I'm in Flagstaff, there's so many runners up here. I'll hop in and out with stuff. Um, but, you know, it's not the same as having 10 dedicated guys with every workout. So, um, yeah, the, the changes come with challenges, but uh, I think the pros have outweighed all the cons so far. And uh, it's been really, really good. Can you go into detail about that? Like what have been the benefits you've seen compared to when you were with Bowman and what are sort of the drawbacks? Yeah. Um, so I guess the drawbacks would be, I, I just don't have 10 bodies around me at all times to drag me through a workout. Um, you know, you don't have, I guess, the the social element of, uh, you know, going for an easy run and just chatting it up for 70 minutes and the, the run flies by. Um, so, so those are pieces that are missing. You know, there's, there's other infrastructure pieces that, uh, I had to sort out on my own. So that would be like track access and gym access. And, you know, what am I doing for physio? Uh, what am I doing for strength work? Um, things like that, that, you know, when you're part of a, a very complete club, like Bowerman are kind of sorted out for you. Um, but gotten all that stuff sorted and, um, I, I liked where it's at and, uh, yeah. And so the, the pros have been, you know, the, the training is very customized. Um, it's just me. So, uh, if, if a pace is a little fast, we'll tweak it a little bit. If it's a little slow, we'll tweak it. Uh, if the volume isn't quite right, if I feel like I can handle a little more, a little less, um, it's an instant tweak. Um, it snowed a little bit in park city. So I drove to Flagstaff. Um, there was no, there were no logistics involved. Um, if it snows too much in Flagstaff, I'll go to Phoenix. Um, and so when, when you're on your own, you, you, um, what you lose in kind of the, the social setting and the advantages of just having guys to drag you around, you, you do gain quite a lot in flexibility. Um, and, uh, I feel like at, at that, at this point in my career, I was ready for that. Um, I don't think I would be ready to kind of go out on my own when I first came out of college. Um, but you know, uh, several years in the Bowerman system. And I feel like I had a good sense of what worked for me and what doesn't and, um, going after all the things that worked for me, but, um, yeah, uh, certainly there were challenges. Um, you know, being an individual, I, there, there are things that I took for granted when I was at Bowerman. Um, but, uh, all those things are mostly sorted out now. So I'm, I'm smooth sailor. What about the training itself? How different does it look to what you were doing under Jerry? Um, it, it's similar. Um, so, I mean, I, I ran really well under Bowerman. Um, Jerry is a fantastic coach, and he got me to incredible levels, uh, levels that I never would have expected when I first came out of college. Um, no, you know, there were, there were things that I thought were really effective for me and things that were really effective for other people in the training group and less effective for me. Um, so that's where the little tweaks come in. Uh, as far as fall training, like, you know, it, it, it's not rocket science in the fall. It, you know, you have threshold work, you have long runs, you have easy runs, you have hills, maybe some speed endurance, some strides. Um, you know, you're, you, you're the, the pieces of the puzzle aren't, uh, you know, nobody's inventing new pieces to that puzzle. It's, it's how you put them together. So, um, I'm putting them together a little different than I did at Bowerman. Um, I've kind of embraced uh, a lot of the double workout stuff. Um, sometimes, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it would be a double threshold session, but sometimes it'll be 
hills and speed endurance on the track in the morning and then more of a threshold session in the afternoon. So technically not the, the double threshold buzzword, but uh, double workouts. And that, that was something that I've been curious about for a while, um, about trying out. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and it's also helped being alone. You know, it's, it's hard doing big, massive one block sessions uh, when you're solo. Um, when you're with 10 guys, it's easier to do 10 miles of strength or 12 miles of, of strength in the morning. Um, but when you're alone, it's easier to do seven in the morning and five in the afternoon, um, something like that. So, um, yeah, the training, the training is a little different. Um, I can go into specifics and stuff if you'd like, but, um, the, the, the way we set it up has been very collaborative with me and Mike. So, um, and, and we've been tweaking it as we go, um, sending it out like, We've been writing out like a month of training at a time about um, sitting down and getting that out. And then, you know, after every workout, tweaking things here and there, um, making sure everything's right. Is Mike there or is he remote or how does that work? So Mike lives in Phoenix. Um, so now that I'm in Flagstaff, uh, he's at every single workout because um, I'll work out in Sedona a lot and Cottonwood uh, or all the way down in Phoenix sometimes. Um, and then when I was in Park City, and when I will be in Park City, um, Mike was at almost every session. He probably missed maybe th maybe three or four sessions. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the threshold stuff I can do on my own very easily. Um, you know, some more of the the more aggressive sessions, it's better to have a coach there. Just sometimes, as an athlete, you can kind of grind yourself into the ground if there's not someone there to hold you back. So, um, yeah, we we have really good communication. Um, you know, he's not there on my easy days, but I don't really need to coach there on my easy days. Um, I'm curious, like when you decided to leave and you told Jerry, I mean, you're not the first athlete to leave. Obviously last year, a lot of people left, but when Woody was kind of the first guys to leave, you know, it came out that, that Jerry sort of said, like, I think you're making a big mistake and not out of a, didn't sound to me like an ego thing, just like he cares for Woody and Woody has progressed a lot, but then Woody's done great under, you know, on his own with Mike Smith, et cetera. What was the conversation like? Like, did he try to talk you out of it? Did he say, I understand? And my other question is, if you propose things to Jerry, like, hey, I don't think this is working for me. Is it just like, no? Or does he ever listen to athlete input or not? I mean, John seems to think it's really rigid, but having coached myself, I would always consider what someone said. I mean, when you're coaching a team, it is a little bit different, but you still, if Grant Fisher says something to me and Grant Fisher's my best guy, I think I would take some of that into the context. So I know that was a double-ended question, but can you answer those for me? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So when I decided to leave the team, um, I, I wasn't in Eugene at the time. Um, when, I, and so I, I, I called, well, I tried to call everyone on the team in one day so that they could all hear it from me. Um, and I flew back to Eugene so I could speak to Jerry in person and have that conversation with him in person. Um, and it, he was very, very understanding. Um, you know, he, he didn't say, Hey, I think you're making a, a big mistake. Um, you know, Jerry, Jerry's a great coach and I know that he knows that. Um, and you know, I, in a way, the conversation was me thanking him for four great years, um, and saying, Hey, I'm, uh, moving on to a new chapter now, but thank you for, for everything you've done for me. And, um, I think he understood and I, I know he still wants the best for me. Um, I don't think there was any bad blood in the conversation or is any, there's no bad blood now. Um, 
So, you know, it, it, it felt a little weird, you know, it, it did feel kind of like a breakup conversation, you know, it, it wasn't something I was looking forward to at all. Um, but some, you know, I, I owed it to him to have the conversation in person, um, to the, I guess the, the second piece of your question, um, you know, when you coach a group with Bowerman, when I've been on the team has been anywhere from like 12 to 25 athletes. Um, and each one of those 10 to or 12 to 25 people all probably have slightly different requests. Um, and so you can't accommodate every single person's request. Um, and, and kind of, like I said, at the beginning, there is a, a massive advantage to training as a group. Um, but the thing you lose when you train as a very big group is that individual individuality, that, that really fine tune tweaking for an individual's needs. Um, because if you're in a group of 10 guys and everyone's doing, I don't know, mile repeats, but their reps are one second per mile different, you know, what's, what's the point of having the group in the first place? If everyone's running individually, just, you know, with, with minor variations, um, you know, I, I see both sides, you know, as a professional group, like Bowerman for the men's 5k has had more success in the U S than pretty much any other group. Um, if you look at the list of sub 13s, you look at, um, you know, teams as of late, you know, the Bowerman system has produced tons of really good athletes in my event. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's a system that works. Um, and when you have an, when you have a system that works, you can't, you know, change it based on one person's requests. I, I understand that. Um, but you know, I, I was ready for those little tweaks in training. Um, and, and so that's one of the reasons why I'm trying something new. Um, but it, but it is more complicated than just like, uh, Hey, I want to do this, you know, um, and, and asking Jerry to change his whole system. But, but was it, was the, the training tweaks, the double workouts, was that the primary factor or was it like, I don't like being in Eugene or all of the above? Yeah. I, again, a variety of things. Um, you know, I wouldn't say there was any one big thing. One of them was the training piece. Um, I wanted to try slightly different stuff. Um, you know, I've, I've been to major global championships before and I've been close to the podium, but I've never been on it. Um, and those margins are really, really slim. Um, and so in my head, I was thinking, you know, maybe these little tweaks, these little changes will be that extra little thing that I need to be half a second quicker, um, over the course of a 10 K and get on the podium. Um, you know, another piece was, was just overall happiness. Um, you know, I, I wasn't the happiest athlete over the past year. And I think that reflected itself quite a bit in my training in my racing and, you know, getting injured in the middle of the year. Um, you know, that, you know, it, it's, it's a cliche, but, you know, stress is stress and, um, life stress or living stress or, uh, you know, all those things do add up and affect your training. And I think just, uh, you know, it, if I, if I weren't a runner and I could choose anywhere in the U S to live, I would not have picked Eugene. Um, but it is a good place to train. Um, and, uh, and that's where the group was based. So that's, that's where we had to move. Um, you know, if, if I could choose anywhere that I could live as a pro runner, I would have chosen park city. And so that's why I chose park city. Um, I really like altitude. I respond really well to it. 
Um, I wanted to spend more time at altitude. Um, and you know, when your group is based at sea level, that's really challenging to do. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that's another factor was the altitude piece, spending more time at it. Um, you know, at the very beginning of this conversation, I listed out my race schedule. Um, that's something I've never been able to do as a pro. Uh, like to know a race schedule that far in advance and really have it concrete and laid out. Um, you know, you know, under, under the Bowerman system, you have a very good idea of what your races are going to be, but um, things are a lot more fluid. Um, and uh, now that I'm individual, I can map out exactly what I want to do map out training exactly how I want it to be and, uh, put my best foot forward. So, um, yeah, man, a lot of things going into it. Um, yeah. When did you first start thinking of leaving? Um, yeah, I, I'd say it was kind of a slow build to it. Um, you know, my mind definitely wandered there when I was injured in the middle of the season. Um, you know, missing the second half of USA's, um, missing making the team, missing worlds, uh, you know, just cross training, uh, relatively alone, um, and building back relatively alone as well. Uh, until I got up to St. Moritz with, with the rest of the team. Um, it was definitely crossing my mind at that point, like thinking, you know, is, is this the right situation for me? I, I knew I had been rather unhappy. Um, is my happiness worth sacrificing, uh, for a proven system? Um, or would I be happier doing something else and, you know, maybe be a better athlete because of it? Um, so, uh, it was kind of a slow build. Um, you know, the, the season ended up being quite good. Um, you know, running three races, uh, when I thought the season was probably over when I first got the injury, um, and, you know, running really well at those races, grabbing a standard, doing well at a diamond league final. Um, so it ended on a high note, um, but at that point, uh, my, at that point, my mind was pretty made up that I, I wanted to try something else, um, and and I was ready for something else. You talked about making tweaks to your training, uh, and one of those is double sessions. Like, were there any other specific tweaks that you really think could make the difference between you know being fourth a couple of years ago and being on the podium this year? Yeah, um, you know, a little bit just of like big picture programming, kind of macro cycle stuff. Um, I think last year I was a little overcooked by the time USA's came around, um, physically, uh, you know, I got injured as well, but I, I think even before that injury, um, just the timing of the cycle and the peaking, um, wasn't, wasn't hundred percent perfect. Um, so this year took a little bit of different approach to the fall, um, a lot more strength oriented, um, you know, wasn't in spikes until I, I think yesterday was my first session where I put on spikes or maybe two days ago. When would you do that? previously when would be your first spike session um you know i would throw on spikes for part of a workout at least you know mid-november um and by december we would be doing some pretty aggressive stuff on the track in spikes um and uh i think that gets you really fit um and uh you know a, a lot of those workouts i'll be taking inspiration from of course because uh, they've worked well for me in the past but um you know just being a little more gentle in the fall um a little more intentional about a build-up into the winter season and then, um, we've done it a little differently each year I've been on Bowerman, but, um, I, I think the way that works best for me going into the outdoor season is taking a pretty big, uh, down cycle come March, April, um, and getting back into kind of that fall base training, uh, and then building back up for, uh, kind of May and June. Um, so, you know, big picture stuff like that. And then, uh, 
really small picture stuff like, you know, splitting a workout into two on a day or, um, you know, I, yeah, yeah. Stuff like that. Getting the volume right. Um, as far as workouts go, as far as total volume go, um, making sure easy runs are easy. It, that's another thing when you're on your own, you can easy run whatever pace you want to go. Um, you're never really dragged into anything. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, small things like that. All right. Something just popped into my head. I want to ask it so I don't forget, but John and I have had this debate about you in terms of meddling. So I'm just going to ask it right now. In 2022, you were fourth, right? In the 10,000. And then in the 5,000 coming off the turn, you were right there. And then you sort of lost your footing. Like, and the debate we've been having is, oh, he definitely was going to meddle. He was in supreme fortness or no, he was tired. That's why he stepped on the rail. Which of those two would you say was more accurate? Well, well, I was tired. Um, you know, with, with 150 to go in the race, you're usually pretty tired. So I was pretty tired. Um, so what happened there was I was on the inside of lane one um, and the guy in front of me was on the outside of lane one. And we were kind of rounding through the curve. And um, as we kind of crested the curve and we're about to go into the straight, the guy in front of me, uh, he, had, he had probably half a step on me cut into the inside of lane one really quickly. And so his back kick kind of came across my knees. And so either had to go in the rail or decelerate really quickly, or we both were going down. Um, and so I, I tried to decelerate really quickly, lost my balance. And by the time I looked back up, I was in like ninth, um, which sucked. You know, you, you think you're in, you know, that, that's the moment that, that you think about all the time, hundred meters to go, 120 meters to go global championship. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to burn through your gears and you're going to come up and be on the podium. Um, but like, just like that, that just like slipped down my grasp. Um, you know, if that hadn't happened, would I have podium? I have no idea. Um, I, I think I would have finished higher than I did. Um, because, you know, yeah, when, when you lose your momentum like that and you're already tired, you know, there's not much coming back you can do. Um, but, you know, that, that was a little bit of bad positioning. You know, you don't want to be caught on the inside. Um, a little bit of bad luck, um, things to learn from, you know, yeah, with 120 to go be on the outside shoulder, not the inside shoulder. Cause when you're on the inside shoulder and the guy half a step in front of you do, does something weird, you got, you have nowhere to go. Um, you're, you're kind of stuck, you're trapped or, or you both go down. So, um, yeah, lessons to be learned there for sure. And though one other question, John, cause I know I'll forget it if I don't ask it now. Don't take this the wrong way, but when I look at your times and was doing the research, I'm like, I mean, you're one of the best high school runners ever in the U.S. And in college, you won NCAA title as a sophomore. But then I'm looking at your times and I'm like, how is he so bad in college? And I, you were one of the best guys in college, but your PB was 1332. Now you've run 2633 for 10,000. I mean, it's wild to me how much faster you are and... I mean, I guess the same thing could be true of Eric Neguse. He was one of the best college runners, and now he's one of the best pros, and he's improved a lot. But what do you attribute that massive improvement? Was it the academics at Stanford? Was it the lack of altitude? How much more are you running now than you were then? Like, Yeah, yeah. So, um, all right. First of all, I ran 13.29 in college. So, so, so don't after, tell me. <laughs> after graduation, right? That was after NCAAs. John, back me up on this. No, no, that was in college. Oh, well, go, go. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm just kidding. I mean, 1329, does that get you into regionals now? I mean, it, it, it's 
1329 is 1332. Like it, it's basically the same thing now. At the time, it was pretty good. Um, but you know, when when I was in college, um, Chris Miltenberg was my coach, and he always had, you know, from the time I came in as a freshman, he always had this vision that you know he had for me was, you know, we want you to be good in ten years. Um, we don't want you to be good, or, or we we don't want you to max out next year or in two years or whatever. Um, he, he always said 10 year plan, 10 year plan. And it was a very conservative system. Um, you know, I was probably running 70 miles a week in college. I think my long run, as long as it went was, I went, I think I went 90 minutes once in college. Um, you know, we were doing, you know, the, the most volume we really ever did was like five by mile on the grouse. Um, you know, looking back to my training in college, it was, it was super conservative and very long picture oriented. It's actually surprising that I ran as fast as I did, um, based on what we were doing, because I'm sure if you look at what we were doing then and what other programs were doing at the time, and certainly what people are doing now, uh, you would think, you know, you know, what, what is this like a middle school program? Like it's, it's, it was very, um, it was just conservative. Um, there weren't many risks we took in training. And then when I went to become a pro, I was thrust into a, a very aggressive system of high volume, high intensity, uh, all the above. And, you know, that's why I think for a long time when people would join Bowerman, there'd be a year or two year adjustment period where, uh, you had to get your footing. You had to get used to that volume again, or not again, but get used to that volume, get used to that intensity because no one was doing that in college. Um, I mean, the top college guy when I was in, in university, I mean, you maybe would have someone break 1320, maybe. Um, but if you ran sub 1330, I mean, you were, you were probably top five in the country. Um, so, so you have to remember, like it, it, it you have to kind of put all of that stuff in context to what other people were doing at that time. Um, you know, now, you know, if you want to be one of the top five guys in the country, you have to be in 1315 shape at least. Um, it, it's just different now. Um, but yeah, I, the, the volume was different in college. I was running 70 miles a week as a pro. I'm, you know, running hundred miles a week. Um, in college, my strength session was five by mile. Now it's 10 miles of work. Um, we really didn't do much speed in college. Um, now we have more speed sessions as professional, uh, no altitude in college altitude as a professional. Um, you have school, uh, very intensive school at Sanford, uh, you know, year round, you know, you don't have that as a pro. Um, you've got all these different lifestyle changes that you can optimize around running when you're a professional, you can't do that in college. Um, or at least when I was in college, we, we didn't really do that. Um, so yeah, lots of factors, but, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, yard was, was very good in college as well. I think he ran like, I think he soloed 334 in college. So that's, you know, that's a little better than what I was doing in college for sure. Okay. I wanted to go back and clarify a couple more things um, about your decision to leave Bowerman because one of them, I was speaking to Courtney Frerichs a couple of days ago and she said, you know, if she had one complaint to make, um, generally she had a pretty you know positive experience there, but was how the move to Eugene was handled um, specifically, you know, the timing of it. And she said some of that might've been out of Jerry's control uh, in terms of getting the Oregon job. But I wanted to clarify with you, like, there was an episode of the Coffee Club podcast a few months ago, and they said that 
you first heard about Jerry taking the Oregon job when someone from Oregon called you, um, you know, as a reference for him. Is that true? Like, how did you learn about this? Um, yeah, that is true. Um, that is how I found out about it, it being a possibility. Um, you know, I, like, I, I don't want to talk bad too much about my, my old situation. Um, you know, I, I'm in a, a new spot now and I really like it. Um, the, the move to Eugene, uh, looking back, obviously there's a lot of ways I think it could have been handled better. Um, as far as communication goes, as far as, uh, inclusivity goes, uh, that I think if that were done at the beginning would have created a much more positive environment for everybody. Um, and that's easy to say looking back now, um, especially me being fully removed from it. Um, but you know, it's still a very good situation for the people that remain there. Um, but yeah, looking back, I, I think, I think the way that, uh, the transition was done, uh, or, or lack thereof a transition, um, really kind of, uh, made made the change uh, a little more painful for a lot of people than it had to be. Um, and look, it, it was rather easy for me as far as logistics go. Um, you know, I, I'm not married. I don't have kids. I don't have a house in Portland. You know, there, there's things that other people on the team had that made the transition a little harder um, rather than just, hey, pack up and move to Eugene. Um, so from Courtney's perspective, yeah, um, she has a husband who has a job or, or had a job. And, uh, it was in Portland and, uh, you know, they had a house, uh, things like that. I think, uh, I think that the move to Eugene could have been handled a little, a little more, um, uh, what's the word, uh, understanding a, a little more, there could have been a little more understanding in the move, um, a little better communication. Uh, for a lot of those things. And I think that would have set things up a little more positively uh, going forward. And around this time last year, you know, we were talking about Woody Kincaid. He broke your American record in the indoor 5,000 meters. And he did it a few months after leaving Baum and staking out his own, kind of similar to what you're doing. Obviously, he was being, you know, he was more, he had more of a group with Mike Smith, but it's a similar situation. I'm curious, you know, did Woody leaving Bauman and then immediately finding success, running fast, winning the U.S. title at 10,000 meters. Like, did that play in your mind at all when you make your own decision? Like, hey, it is possible for athletes to leave and continue to have success? Yeah, you know, I, I spoke to Woody about this because um, I, I think I mentioned at one point that I tried to call everyone on the team uh, to let them know that I was leaving. And I, I called a few, you know, people that used to be on the team too that, you know, I, I care about and stay in touch with him and, and, and I'm friends with And Woody was one of those people. And, um, you know, I was talking with him and I was, uh, you know, kind of just talking out loud with him, but I was wondering like, you know, would I be as confident making this change if, if he hadn't made a similar change in the year before and, and, you know, been just as, or more successful. Um, and you know, it, it's hard to say a hundred percent, but it, it didn't hurt that, uh, you know, that most people and, when I first joined Bowerman, I, I thought that was where I was going to retire. I thought, you know, because that's what people did. Uh, people signed with Nike, signed with Bowerman, and, um, you know, laid out their whole career there. There, there wasn't much movement uh, off the team other than retirement uh, when I first joined in 2019. Uh, leaving when you were still kind of in your prime was pretty unheard of. Um, 
So yeah, when, when Woody left and found great success and, you know, chatting with him throughout that process and hearing what he liked about the change, what he didn't like, you know, what was, what were growing pains, what were struggles, what he missed, what he didn't, um, you know, that was all good information. Um, so that I wasn't the first person to kind of see like, you know, am I good at running because of Bowerman or am I good at running because of me or a combination? Um, can I find similar success or better success? Um, with a slightly different system. Um, and the answer is you don't know. Um, but you know, having Woody do that, uh, just a year before me definitely gave a little bit of confidence to, you know, if I'm doing something that makes me happier, um, that I believe in, uh, I think I can be just as good at, or better. Um, you know, obviously time will tell there's no guarantees, uh, if I would be just as good at or better if I stayed even. So, um, you never know. But yeah, w- I'd say it definitely had an impact. I think that's the interesting part about this decision. Certainly when, you know, I heard the news in October you were leaving, I was like, wow, he's done some really impressive things the last couple of years. All those American records, your most recent race, you know, you ran 725, smashed the American record. And now you're choosing to leave, you know, going into what I would say is your prime Olympic year. But at the same time, you know, you've got maybe you're a little happier it sounds like you're in a happier place now like how much of a risk do you view this leaving your old setup one that you knew you were pretty good in uh for something that's unknown how much of a risk do you view that as yeah i mean it's hard to quantify risk i guess but um it's certainly a risk like the safe thing to do is to stay um the safe thing to do is to to say okay look i've done all these great things with bowerman it's got me on teams before it's got me american records it's got me u.s titles like the safe thing to do is just, okay, let's just try that again. Um, but you know, even, even that isn't guaranteed. Um, you know, I, this past year I was, I was with Farman and I didn't make a team. Um, so the going into 2024, um, you know, there's no guarantee that staying would get me on a team or not. Um, I knew that I wanted a little more control over everything that I did and, uh, the way, uh, the easiest way to do that was to, to do it myself. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that I guess kind of summarizes a lot of the reasons why I left. Um, and, and I'm trying something new, but yeah, it, it of course is a risk. Um, but you know, I felt like I, I felt in my heart that it was time to go. It was time for a change. It was time for me to try something new and I felt ready for it. Um, and it, it, and it manifested itself more in excitement. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was hard calling a lot of the guys who I was friends with and remained fr- friends with and, you know, telling them, Hey, I'm really excited about this next step. Um, when I knew that, you know, they were staying and that they're still in a good situation. So, um, you know, a little bit of mixed emotions. Um, it, it would be naive of me to say there's no risk in, in switching things up, especially in Olympic year. Um, but you know, it, it gives me, um, it gives me a lot of just like peace knowing that like whatever happens this year uh, and beyond, it was my decision. And um, there's a lot of things in my control that weren't before. And if they work out great, um, if they work out better than before, then that's awesome. That'll feel really nice. But you know, if they don't work out, then I, you know, I gave it my best go as well. So um, risk or no risk, like, I don't know when you know, deep down that, that it's the right time to do something or you want to make a change. Um, I don't think, I don't think making that change is ever the wrong decision. 
and you know, looking between your departure and Elise Cranny leaving, uh, Woody last year as, as well, like it kind of feels like it's a bit of an end of an era at Bowman. Like, do you view it that way as well? And if so, like, how does that make you feel? Um, I wouldn't say it's the end of an era. Um, I, I think it's just a different era. Um, I, I mean, it's hard to define eras when you're in them, but um, I, I think you'll, if you look at the, the Bowerman timeline 10 years from now, um, you'll probably look back and say, okay, these were the, the original guys, uh, Teg Selinski, like uh, Simon, you know, that, that kind of era. And then there was kind of the, the, the more like, um, I don't, I don't want to call it social media charged, but the, the more Bowerman babe and Bowerman bro, uh, era that I kind of inherited when I came in, um, kind of the tail end of those, of those OG guys. And then now, now we're kind of walking into the, the Eugene U of O era. Um, so, um, I, you know, I don't think it's like the end of anything. It's just, uh, it's just different than it was. Um, you know, the, the, the system has evolved at each of those steps and will continue to evolve. And, um, the people that remain there will still run really well. Um, they're still fantastic athletes and they still have a great coach. Um, it sends me a little bit that I'm, you know, stepping away from it because like I said, a little while ago, I, I envisioned being with Bowerman until, you know, my thirties and, you know, when the wheels come off basically. Um, so it's a little sad looking back and thinking, you know, this brand that was so a part of me, um, that I put so much into and got so much out of, uh, out of my own decision, I've walked away from it. Um, that's certainly a little sad. And, uh, you know, the, the community aspects, the friendships, uh, that is sad that I'm kind of, uh, as far as like branding goes, I'm stepping away from that. I'll, I'll be just wearing a, a Nike kit and not a, a Bowerman kit anymore. Um, so that'll be a little weird, but, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I still, am going to be cheering for those guys. Um, but yeah, it, it'll be different. Like that first race I, I go to and, uh, I'll be having different colors on than, than some of my old teammates. That'll be a little weird. Do, do you think the Bowerman Tri-Club will exist in five years? I think Jerry still um, wants to coach the pros? That's, you know, that's a good question. Might be a better question for, for Jerry, I guess, than me. But um, will the Bowerman Tri-Club exist? I think in some form or another, yes. Um, and uh, do I think Jerry still wants to coach pros? I think he does. Um, I think he really enjoys coaching the college kids too. Um, you know, there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Uh, he's achieved pretty much the highest level on the pro side, um, at Wisconsin, he achieved, you know, pretty much the highest level there. So, uh, he's achieved great things in both. Um, you know, I, I don't want to speak for him one way or the other, but, um, you know, I, I think he's doing his best at, at doing both right now. Um, I think, I think Bowerman track level will exist in some form in five years would be my guess. All right. Well, you, you answered a lot of questions about Bowman, so we appreciate that. Like, is there anything else you wanted to say about your time with the team before we kind of move on to other topics? <laughs> no, no, I, I feel like we covered a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I I look back fondly about uh, with my time at Bowman. Um, those were great years of my life, form, formative years of my life, um, and I wouldn't be ready for this next step right now if I hadn't been at Bowman those four years. Um, but it was it was time for me to go. I, I knew it deep down. Um, and I was ready for the change. So, um, I'm, I'm excited for it, but 
I'll, I'll still have a, pl- a special place in my heart for, for Bowerman and, you know, all my friends that are still there. Can you tell me what the adjustment was like to starting double workouts? Like, had you ever done that before in your career? What was the learning curve like adjusting to that? Yeah. So I, I'd done that in high school. I'd done that in college. Um, never done it as a pro. Um, so, uh, it's stuff that I've done before. Um, and I've always liked it. And, you know, it, from an intuitive sense, it, it, it does, it, it does seem like a good idea. Um, you know, if, if you can do, uh, whatever X amount of quality a week, uh, doing singles, and then if you can do X plus five miles of quality a week, if you do doubles, um, you know, the, the double system is probably a little better. Uh, you know, there's a time and a place for them. You know, if you're, if you're a marathon runner, um, you got to run 20 miles at mar- marathon pace. You know, like there's no way around that. Um, if you're a 10 K guy, you still need to be doing pretty, pretty big volume in one session, uh, to get used to that pounding and that, uh, just time on your feet of going. Um, but when you're, especially because I'm doing this alone, um, it's nice splitting it mentally and physically, uh, you know, doing it, doing it at a 10 mile tempo, uh, yeah, it just kind of wears you down, um, mentally in a way that it doesn't when you only have to leave one mile of the 10 mile tempo, um, when you're with a group. So, um, yeah, yeah. The, the, the double system. Yeah. It's stuff that I've done before. I've liked it. Um, especially with how open, uh, being Uberts and brothers have been with it. Um, Mary Spocken has been with it. Uh, a lot of people are adopting it. Um, you know, a lot of different sports do similar systems. Uh, triathletes do similar stuff cross-country skiers, cyclists, swimmers. Um, most other endurance sports kind of will do a lot more sessions. Um, they often have the advantage of a little less pounding than running. You know, you can get away with working out every day. If you're a swimmer, you can't really do that if you're a runner. Um, but uh, the ideas are are good in my mind and I've liked it a lot and my body's responded really well to it. So um, yeah, I've liked it. Do you do a lot of lactate testing during workouts or is it more by feel? Uh, lots of lactate testing. Um, so that was something I did a lot growing up. Um, I started doing lactate testing when I was freshman in high school, um, and was doing that all through my senior year of high school. Um, didn't do it in college, did not do it as a pro. Um, and that was something I was interested in getting back into, uh, just understanding what was really going on inside my body beyond just, you know, the, the feel that you gain, uh, after several years of doing it as a pro doing just high level running as a pro. Um, so yeah, lots of lactate testing. Um, that's also nice with, uh, you know, being on your own individually, making sure you don't kill yourself or make sure you're going hard enough. Uh, just having a little bit of a, um, an objective, uh, marker for what you're doing. Since you like data, do you, do you wear like a GPS watch when you do your easy days? I mean, I pretty much stopped running right when GPS watches were becoming mainstream. (laughs) So like you talked about the easy days being easier, but do you have data that shows like, Oh yeah, I'm averaging like eight seconds a mile slower than I did last year. Like any, any small things that are showing up just, I I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, in, uh, high school, college, and for most of my professional career, I never wore a GPS watch. I was all about the the Timex stopwatch. Um, almost, I, I was, I was stubborn about it. Like, you know, I'm not using a GPS watch, you know, that, that type. And, uh, 
I think maybe about a year ago, uh, Bowerman signed a deal with uh, Garmin. So we all got Garmin's. So my first CPS watch. And uh, so I would wear it for stuff. And uh, I, I actually enjoyed seeing the data a little more than I thought I would. Um, and uh, so I asked, I asked Garmin for uh, a heart rate strap. So I started wearing a heart rate monitor um, and looking at that stuff and, and got really interested in just like, how hard am I really going on these easy days? How hard am I really going on these threshold days? Um, how hard are these kind of VO2 max days? Um, and so a lot of the Bowerman guys, we kind of compare all of our numbers and, you know, kind of talk shit to each other about, you know, who's running too hard, who's running too easy, you know, yada, yada. But um, so, yeah, now I have a GPS watch and I have my Timex. Um, some days I'll wear one, sometimes I'll wear the other. Um, you know, if, if it's a long run where I'm trying to hit splits, the GPS watch is super handy. Um, I, you know, for a lot of the threshold sessions, I'm caring way more about the lactate number than the heart rate number. Um, but, uh, I do, I do like having the data. It's, it's really fun. Um, it's nice to see like this year relative to last year, kind of like you said, what the differences are. Um, you know, this week relative to last week, what the differences are, um, and kind of track your progress that way. It's nice to have like a tangible number, um, to kind of associate all these different paces, feelings, uh, you know, aggression in the workout, you know, how much you're pushing. Uh, it's nice to have a number to kind of associate that with them. And also to either give you an indication that, Hey, pr press a little bit here or, you know, back off a little bit here. Um, it, it's been nice. So is it, is it slower than last year? Is what, uh, easy runs? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, it depends. So, um, so last year in the fall, I was at sea level and this year in the fall, I'm at 7,000 feet in park city. So, um, it, it's hard to really compare. Um, I'd say like, uh, I, most runs that I've had are, are probably faster than they were at sea level though. Most of the easy days. Um, but the, the feeling is, is still pretty light. So you know, easy days, I guess a common metric would be like heart rate. Um, you know, my heart rate's not really getting much over like 130, um, even at altitude on those easy days. Uh, ideally, it would be more like 120. Um, and so like th that was about what it was at sea level last year. And, um, you know, easy run pace, is that a great indication of where your fitness is? I'd say probably not. Um, it's interesting to look at, but I, I wouldn't say that's, a that's an indicator that I'm any more or less fit than last year. Uh, when you look at trying to improve, trying to get on that podium uh, in Paris, like assessing Grant Fisher, the runner, is there a specific weakness you're trying to improve on? You think if I can make this better, I'm going to be a medalist or is it just more sort of all around? Well, it's certainly all around. Um, you know, when, when it's come down to, to making the podium or not, it, it always comes down to the final laugh. Um, I mean, I, I think gone are the days where you have someone break away and have like a 30 meter lead going into the final lap. And it's like, okay, this guy's getting first, this guy's getting second, you know, yada, yada. Um, it's almost always competitive, you know, even with a hundred meters to go. So, um, the kick has to be there. Um, and my kick hasn't been good enough to get on the podium. And, you know, there, there's layers to that. The obvious one is, okay, well, you got to be able to kick better. Um, but you know, there's nuances to that. You need to be able to get to 400 meters to go and, be not tired enough so that you can kick. Um, otherwise the person with the quickest, like flat out 400 speed would win every, every race, but that's not the case. Um, so, 
you know, it, it, it's very nuanced. Um, obviously, I've been really close before. So it's not like we need to reinvent the wheel here. Um, but yeah, being able to kick off of a fast pace um, it, is something that I really need to, to hone a little better. I think my tactics could be improved quite a bit too. Um, so the, the example of getting caught on the inside there and kind of getting squeezed out um, in, in Eugene the other year, you know, that's something that, you know, had I been on the outside, you know, could I have meddled? Maybe would the outcome have been the same? Maybe. Uh, it's tough to say, but I would have given myself a better shot. Um, so yeah, I, it, it's kind of an overall improvement that needs to happen, um, both in the ability to run that pace more comfortably and then also to be able to kick a little better off of that pace uh, and be in better positions. And um, so much goes into that. Can you tell me, are you still doing any like school these days, I think a couple of years ago, you should have taken on an extra degree or something. Like, what's your academic status at the moment? My academic status, yeah. Um, so when I when I graduated from Stanford in my undergrad in 2019, I was I just gotten admitted into a master's program there, um, and so I, I could have stayed for a fifth year. I think I only had indoor track, um, so I was like, ah, not really worth it to stay and do this master's. So I dropped out of the master's and went pro, um, and then yeah, halfway through the pandemic. Um, Stanford made a lot of the classes uh, online accessible because students weren't in person. So they built out a bunch of infrastructure. So I emailed the department and asked if I could restart and uh, do it fully remote. And they said, yeah. So for two years, I took like a, a half course load, basically. So a one-year master's program took me two years. And then I, I took my, my last final in, at the beginning of December and I'm graduated now. So no more school. Congratulations. What was the degree? Yeah, yeah thanks. Uh, it was in a program called uh, Management Science and Engineering. Um, my my specific concentration was called Computational Social Science. So, so very very kind of like uh, vague terms, yeah, but it was a lot of pro- it was a lot of programming, a lot of data science, um, a lot of software stuff, um, kind of yeah, data prediction stuff. Um, so uh, it was fun. I, very similar to stuff I did undergrad. Um, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of coding. Yeah. So do you think you're permanently done now or will you, is there a PhD <laughs> at any point down the line? You know, honestly, for the first year and a half of doing that program, I loved it. Um, and it was really nice to have something other than running to kind of work towards and spend some time doing and not just play video games and stuff. Um, the final like six months of it, I was pretty ready to be done. I, I'd like I'd the equivalent of like senioritis, I guess. Like I was, I was doing the bare minimum at that point, just trying to get to the finish line. Um, I don't see any school in the near in the near future for me. Um, you know, I, I'm really happy that I was able to to get a degree, and um, you know, I'm really honestly that's like even besides the running thing. Like I, I'm really proud of myself for like actually buckling down and doing that because there were several times where I wanted to drop out and just focus on running. Um, but, but made it through and, uh, I, I don't think school's on the horizon anytime soon. Yeah. I think you've earned yeah. at this point. <laughs> uh, all right, Robert, anything else you want to cover before we let Grant go? He's been very generous this time. Yeah. I got a few logistical questions. Yeah. I mean, all these coaches, none of them live in the same town as a runner. So how does coach, is it Mike? Mike, yeah. 
like oh, I did look it up. Looks like there's a nonstop from Phoenix to, to Park City on Frontier <laughs> Airline for like a hundred bucks. Does he just fly in and fly out the same day? How did Jerry do it? Like, I'm just curious, like how that logistically works. And does he have another yeah, job? Yeah. Like, how, he can he just take off and just say, "Sorry, guys, I'm not going to be in on Tuesday." <laughs> yeah. So so Mike Mike's retired. Um. So yeah, he does have the time flexibility. His kids are growing up. Um. So uh, decent time flexibility. Um. So how are you doing it in the fall? I was, um, I was looking for a house in the fall, so I, I didn't really have anywhere to live. So I was staying with uh, Centro at his house for like two months, which was very generous of him, uh, him and his wife. So um, Mike would come in for, he'd fly in in the morning. We'd do a morning session. Um, you know, he'd hang out in town. We'd do an afternoon session and then he'd fly out that night. Uh, there's a decent amount of directs. Uh, I think they're on Delta uh, from Phoenix to to Salt Lake City and back. And, um, you know, that is one of the advantages of Park City. I, I like that there's a major airport really close. Um, I, I have a place of my own now, so uh, Mike doesn't have to do the the one day in and out anymore. Like he can stay with me for a little bit if he wants to like stay for multiple workouts, stay multiple days or whatever. Um, so it's worked out quite well. Um, how Jerry would do it, uh, he would do something similar. He'd often fly in in the morning, administer a workout and fly home that afternoon. Um, there would be occasions where he would come out for extended blocks where, you know, he'd come out for, you know, four or five days at a time and, you know, administer two workouts in that time. Um, but, you know, as an athlete, like you live a very nomadic lifestyle. And um, I, I feel like you see this with a lot of coaches, you know, coaches often have a family and kids. Um, you know, it's harder to be a nomad, uh, you know, following the athletes around when you're like that. Um, but yeah, it's worked out great with Mike. Um, like I said, like it's it kind of full circle with me cause I've known him since I was a kid. Um, but yeah, the, the setup's been great. It'll be a little easier on him now that I have a house and he doesn't have to, you know, do these day trips. Uh, but yeah, it's been good. Yeah, I remember that was one of the first things I wrote for let's run was a profile of you and your coach back in 2014. I think you're, you're still <laughs> in high school then. And he struck me as a smart guy, but I'm wondering, like, has he ever coached? What's the best runner other than you he's ever coached? And was there any concern on your end, you know, throwing him in with one of America's top distance runners heading into an Olympic year? Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly unproven. Um, I, I, yeah, it, it'd be kind of ridiculous for me to say it's it's, it's a proven like formula here. Um, Certainly unproven. Uh, I trust Mike a lot. I think he trusts me. Uh, I have a very good idea of what works for me and he's, uh, been very collaborative in our setup. Um, you know, Mike has worked with a lot of athletes. I, you know, has he worked with someone of my caliber before? Not really. Um, I don't think there's, I mean, uh, not to say this the wrong way, but I don't think there's many coaches out there that have worked with someone of my caliber. Um, so the options are rather limited if you're looking for, for that specific thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, another thing I liked about Mike is he's been doing lactate-based training for the past 20 years. Um, so he understands that well, the nuances of it. Um, whereas uh, I did it, you know, for four years when I was in high school running for him, but, uh, you know, I'm far from understanding every nuance to it. Um, I think, you know, you, you can poke your finger and see the number and stuff, but there's a lot more to it than, uh, just, you know, the numbers, um, but it, it is a really nice system. I like it a lot. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, 
I, I have high confidence in it. Um, so in my head, that's all that matters. Um, they'll, you know, there'll be a lot more data in the coming months uh, on how it's going. See, John, I told you anybody can coach a medalist if they can coach Grant Fisher. <laughs> I'm always, I'm always joking with John about what I say. John, I made some bold statement about. Well, Robert, his we, whole thing is he thinks coaching <laughs> is in generally overrated, and that anyone who has success who's younger than him, he needs to take him down a peg. So there's a lot tied into Robert's thoughts on coaching. <laughs> All right, enough of that. But you, earlier you talked about we need to, to, to grow the sport. We've got to get the incentives to match up. And I was just sort of wondering, like, it seems like everybody almost in America runs Milrose and they do do a good job of even reaching out to us as media members and getting athletes. And I know people get, you know, can get paid to go there, but it's not the money that, that people go to Milrose, right? Is it more the timing of the year? I mean, you'll run the 10 for free, right? So it's not that you're making a lot of money at Milrose. Is it that gets everybody there? Uh, so I guess your question is why, why does Milrose become such a good event? Um, so, so part of it is just the history of it. Um, you know, it kind of has that cachet. Uh, part of it is they do have money to throw around for appearances. Um, part of it is they're a world athletics gold label. Um, so you do rack up points, um, by going there. Um, part of it is, uh, um, you know, when you have historically fast races and good fields and competitive fields, then it kind of snowballs. Like people go there because that's where people go. Um, you know, it's, it, it, I don't think it's anything more technical than that really. Um, yeah, I'll run the sound running 10 K for free. Um, that, that, you know, in, in any situation, you know, runners run because they love it. Um, no one's running with, with money being the primary target. Uh, but money is a reality, uh, that everyone has to deal with. Uh, and you know, if you're going to run, you might as well make some decent money while you're, you're at it. You know, you don't, want to just run for free all the time. So, um, yeah, Milrose becomes big for, for those reasons I listed. Um, there's probably more, um, the sound running 10 K has become big because it's, uh, in a perfect location, perfect time of year. Um, it's a proven track where people have run fast. Uh, again, you know, people break, people break whatever, 27, 10 on that track last year. And, uh, so this year people have confident confidence, like, okay, that will be a sub 27, 10 race this year. Um, you know, if the race got moved to a different track in Southern California, I think people would still run fast on it, but people might not have that same, like, uh, I don't know, mental, uh, expectation. I think expectations matter a lot in, in track. Um, when you go to a place and say, this is a fast track, this is this is a fast race. Like it often becomes that because people just believe that and go for it. Um, Milrose, like it's a fast track and uh, it's a fast race. It's a fast environment. And yeah, is the track good? The track is good. Um, but I think also people go there and expect to run fast. So people do. Um, but what, you know, we're kind of American centric. I mean, last year I gave you a lot of credit because you know, when you didn't do world XC, I was kind of disappointed. I'm like, no, he went to leave and, that was fast too, 723, 724. What was that like? I mean, is that just as big of a deal for them in Europe as it is, as Milrose is for us, but we just don't pay attention to it because it's over there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, in general, the U.S. Uh, distance running community is very U.S. centric, which makes sense. Um, you know, in Europe, uh, 
yeah, things are different. Um, when you go over there to race a few times, you start to understand, you know, that you go to Brussels and you race in front of 50,000 people. Um, you know, it makes a lot of these domestic races look, uh, a little, a little amateur. Um, you know, you, you go to Levan and it's a production. Um, I raced in Madrid indoors while I was over there too. And it was a production. Um, it's really, really fun racing over there. The only problem as an American is it's hard to travel there and come back. Um, you know, another example of that is like, you know, there's diamond leagues in my events in China early this year, like April. Um, but you know, nobody's really in the right, uh, fitness or wants to travel to China from the U S uh, in April. Um, so, so the more convenient and better timed and, uh, I don't know, more prestigious diamond leagues like Rome will have basically the, the Olympic final will, will be in Rome. Um, the Olympic final will be in Celestia. So these different races that technically are the same level, um, like, like the Leven meet and the Milrose meet, I believe are both gold label meets. Um, I liked going over there to, to do something new, try some different race, different guys, um, you know, practice flying over there and racing. Um, I didn't run, you know, out of my mind well, but I ran all right. And, uh, it was a good experience. Um, you know, it'd be cool if more people, I'd say more Europeans come to the U S to rest, to come to the U S to race indoors often than Americans go to Europe. It seems, um, as yeah, a big piece of that is logistics too. It's just harder to get over there. All right. One last question, not related to you, but it sounds like you and central are buddies. After the December mile race, I had to write him off. I said, John, I would love for central to come back. I mean, he won a damn goddamn gold medal. <laughs> But I'm like, no, it's this. Like, I've been hoping for too long. December in a road mile, you're done. That's Robert's. I I had to stick a fork in him. John's still holding out. My favorite phrase is talent doesn't go away. How's he doing? How's he feeling? You know, you don't have to give away any state secrets if you don't want to. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Center is a good guy. And it's been, it was, it's been super nice having him in Park City because um, he's just like pure entertainment all the time. Just, he's a great storyteller. very chatty. You know, he makes a run go by really quickly. Um, good dude. And yeah, he, he's been really generous with like showing me the ropes in park city. Um, uh, you know, while I was out there and, um, you know, <laughs> it's December. Um, you know, it is the mile generally a young man's game. Yes. Um, however, I, I wouldn't count them out. I, I, there's certain people that you don't come out. There's count out. There's certain people that are kind of gamers. Um, I, and based on what I've seen from Centro over the years, like he really doesn't need that much. Um, yes, some people need like a long build. Um, I I don't think he needs a super, super long build. Um, you know, 403, uh, in Hawaii, like, I don't know. I I don't think you can draw too many conclusions in December from that. I'm sure he would have loved to have run 358 instead or 357 instead, but, um, there's a lot of year left. And, you know, the mile, the 1500, you know, it's a bit of a crapshoot. Um, you never know, like when it actually comes down to it, who's going to make a team, who's going to medal, all those things. And I'd say Centro has done a good job of proving that, that he can turn it on when he needs to turn it on. So, um, I'd say hold off, hold off a little longer. Boom. Grant yeah. just made my whole argument for me. Thank you, Grant. Right. <laughs> oh, actually, I do have one last question before we let you go. Yeah. Um, Milrose is on February 11th, which is Super Bowl Sunday. And you're 
Detroit Lions are in the playoffs, the division champion for the first time, I think, before you were born. Are you a football fan? And do you like the Lions? And do you think it's possible in any universe we could actually have the Lions in the Super Bowl uh, that <laughs> evening after you run Milrose? Yeah, so so when I was a kid, um, there was one year that I got really into the Lions. Um, they went 3-0 and in the preseason, um, so I was pretty gung-ho. And then they went 0-16 uh, during the regular season. And so from that moment on, I, I, I said I would never cheer for the Lions again. Um, and I've stuck to that, but this year they're making it a little tough. Um, I'm, I'm considering hopping on the bandwagon. Um, it is cool to see, like a lot of my friends that, that I grew up with are like super stoked and, you know, the Lions have always been terrible. It's, it's been, it's been like, you know, it's just been a joke. You know, they, they almost win every game, but end up like, yeah, whatever, 0 16, or they, they win two games over the whole season. So it's cool to see. Um, I'll cheer for him. Um, I'll never forget that 0 16 season, but, um, I'll, if they make the Super Bowl, I'll cheer for them. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we'll see about that, I guess. We, we do know that you'll be running on Super Bowl Sunday. It should be a great race, should be a great meet. It always is. Uh, we're looking forward to it. And thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll, we'll see you at Milrose, Grant. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Did you enjoy this podcast? If so, you need to think about joining the Let's Run.com Supporters Club. It's the best club in running, in our opinion. Supporters Club members get a second podcast every week. Join for a year to get one of the softest running shirts out there, access to the Supporters Club forum, exclusive content, and a lot more. We'll even buy you the beverage of your choice at a meetup. Join today, Let's slash subscribe. Use code CLUB25 to save 25% the first year. Link in the show notes.